Hello and welcome to Survivor Historians. Uh, today in our special user quest or uh, listener question podcast. I'm Mario Lanza, and in the immortal words of Ken Stafford, yo, 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 bitches, what's up? This is where it all started, folks, in Africa. This is Paul Oselson podcasting with Mother Africa like I do all the time. And this is Jay Fisher, and I just got to say, I was with these two chicks, right? And I was with these two chicks. Oh, you're dudes. Awkward. <laughs> Bangarang, Jay. Oh, yeah, booyah. Sports fans. <laughs> And yes, this is our very special listener question podcast where we've done absolutely no preparation whatsoever. We have no notes. We have absolutely nothing. We're going to be just riffing on material tonight because basically we have turned the material of the show over to our listeners where we opened up our Gmail inbox. I said, if you have any questions you want us to talk about or answer about the show, about the podcast, about me, Paul, or Jay, send them in. And basically we were turning it over to you for the material of the show. So that is our special podcast tonight. We are not talking about a specific season. It's all listener questions. Yeah. This Feel about is, that. This is just a huge, like, ego boost for Jay. People actually wrote in questions. And even if they were addressed to Jay, Mario and I went through and we changed some that, so that they were directed <laughs> right to Jay. In fact, if there's anything that's, you know, really directed towards Jay, it's probably one that Mario and I made up. But this is all about <laughs> boosting Jay's ego. Oh, Paul, you're so sweet. <laughs> Anything for you, Mr. Bearded Man? Ah, oh, what, what is a baller, Paul? Big baller. That, <laughs> that's you. Wait, how's it going? That's, that's you, big, big baller. Nothing bad, oh, Jay. Oh, I tripped up, Paul. We're five minutes in. This is going to be some fucking yeah. great podcast right here. Paul, you paused and you lied. <laughs> I find you amazing, Mario. <laughs> All right. So let's just jump right in as we have literally over 100 questions right now. Hold on. Before, you, before I begin, I must say that this is going to be incredibly masturbatory for everyone out there as well. Just where there's going to be a lot of in jokes and inside jokes. And if anyone writes something that says like, wow, you guys are really, you know, laughing at yourselves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, if, and if anyone thinks it's a good idea, you just stumbled upon, upon the historians and you think, oh, let me do the listener feedback one and then watch and listen to the rest of the episodes. Wrong idea, because we're going to be building off of how many podcasts have we done now? Like 35 of inside jokes. So uh, yeah, pretty much. listen to the other ones first. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to be like, these guys are, I, I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm proud to say out of all the emails we got, most of them, people behave themselves. We only got one picture of a dong, and we only got one, one death threat. So I'm, pr- I'm, very, I'm proud of our, our listeners. Yeah, good that's job, good. Guys. Good numbers. Good restraint. <laughs> all right. We're going to jump right into, into it here. And fittingly, our first question is from a guy named Boner. And Boner writes in and said, you guys never really discussed Sandra's win in Pearl Islands. What was the general fan reaction when she won that season? And that's actually a good question. I, I was kind of ticked myself we didn't, never talked about that. Um, <clears throat> my personal opinion was when Sandra won at the time, the, the consensus seemed to be, A, well, thank God it wasn't fair play, and B, well, this is just another Vesepia win where all these exciting players are, are fighting it out and then kind of this under-the-radar female comes in with, no, with not really much of a storyline and wins the game. So that was what I remember. I mean, she was more popular than Vesepia. She wasn't... Like, Vesepia just got trashed. Sandra never got trashed, but Sandra, I would, would say, was never beloved either. She had her fans, but she was always kind of, I think, a meh winner kind of among most of the fans. I don't know. Would you guys agree with that from what you remember? Well, first, I thought you were going to say that A, thank God Fairplay didn't win, and B, thank God Lil didn't win. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I would I would agree with that, especially from even my standpoint. It wasn't till I mean, even when Heroes versus Villains, you know, came around and they you know announced the cast. I mean, no one was saying like, yes, Sandra's back, except for Mario. Um, but yeah. I, think, I mean, at that point, I really was on to Sandra, and you really had appreciated more thanks to Mario's uh, you know documenting of her in the the Funny One Fifteen and not. But yeah, it was it was similar to Vesepia, but then I think what kind of helped Sandra a little bit more was that it was right on the heels on All Stars, so people really didn't fixate on it long enough because it was there was this next huge season was coming up and stuff, so people didn't didn't hang on that Sandra's win for that long. But definitely was a forgettable win, I think, for a long time. And this is something we've talked about before. I think we have. If not, we're going to talk about it a lot in the future. Where the Survivor fan base, I hate to say it, inherently is a little sexist in that. If a male wins Survivor, it's usually awesome. And if a female wins Survivor, it usually was, what the fuck? Where did that come from? Or what a lucky winner. So, I mean, that's, you'll just see this pattern over and over in Survivor history. Sandra won, and it was mostly greeted with, how the hell did she win? She didn't do anything. So, again, she wasn't hated like Vesepia, but there was not like this great outcry of, oh, my God, she won like when Ethan won or something like that. The sexism in Survivor and the Survivor fan base is a really interesting topic, and I don't, I don't really want to bring it up right now because it's literally something you could talk about for an hour because there are so many facets to it. Because I think it's overcomplicated just to say that the Survivor, uh, uh, the Survivor fans are sexist, like male win, yay, female win, boo. There, there is a lot of that. But at the same time, it seems to me like when you expand it to an alliance per se, right? Like, there have been a couple of alliances that have been predominantly male, um, like uh, in, in Africa, Lex, Tom, and Ethan were kind of like driving that alliance with, uh, with Kim Johnson and Toe and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, there were the four ho- horsemen in Fiji, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who were comedy into of themselves. But, you know, the, a lot of successful all-female alliances have done really far. I think Vanuatu, they stuck together very, very well, of course, blown up by Amazing Chris. Um, and then uh, uh, in Micronesia and in One World, uh, a woman's alliance basically carried it to the end. And what was funny was that when One World was happening just uh, uh, some years ago, because it's more recent season than some of the ones we talk about, people were like, I'm so glad to see a woman's alliance succeeding. And I'm like, women's alliances tend to succeed, whereas male <laughs> yeah. alliances tend to not. So I don't know where you're going with that. But yeah, the racism thing is interesting. But I think that Paul, I, I echo what Paul said, like you Going into the finale, I was rooting for Fair Play or even Dara, not so much Sandra, and but it was really just like anybody but Lil. Anybody but Lil, please somebody but Lil win. And that happened. So thank goodness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm a huge Sandra fan now, but at the time I was rooting for Fair Play. So it really wasn't even on my radar that she might win. So it's just one of those things where... I appreciated more in retrospect later, which I think is true for a lot of people. Yeah, there wasn't as much... Um dissecting i mean there was i mean there was this interconnect community i'm not going to say it now but i think i feel like everything you know with social media the way it is now and everything like that it just kind of gets more compounded it's just like i don't think really people were thinking sandra as a winner at all it's just she's in the finale you know and then and then she got to the final three then she got to the final two and you're like dude she's gonna beat lil Yeah, that's, that's pretty... I mean, other than... There was always a vocal minority out there of, well, Lil should have won. Lil played an amazing game. But if you if you just figure out common sense she was not going to win, then Sandra was the best winner in that possible scenario. So that's kind of how it goes. Those, piece, those, those people have since been stoned to death. So that small yes. minority no longer exists. They've been sacked. Enjoy. All right. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I think uh, we're rotating questions here. So I think Jay is the next question. Okay, so 
this question came from uh, Outlast the Outcast. And the question is, do you guys think you'll ever be able to do interviews with past players? Uh, good question. Um, it's a great question. Yeah, I guess I, I can't speak for the group, but I think that uh, I think that really, if we wanted to interview some past players, I think the answer is we could. There are avenues that we could. I think that the thing though is, I don't think we really want to. I think it's just the three of us waxing fun about Survivor, and I think that's just the way it is. Do you guys want to jump in on that? Unless it's Zoe, I have no interest in talking to these people. So shit, yeah. <laughs> Because we would, I think we'd all stop everything if, like, if we got an email from Zoe that was like, "Hey, can I come on your podcast?" I think we would do that. But other than that, I don't know. Hey, let me cancel this. I have Jean on hold. She was about to join <laughs> oh, the God. podcast. <laughs> no, let me cut the her off. Name, the name resurfaces. <laughs> fucking Jean. No, and my my stance on this is again, we could have survivors on the podcast. It wouldn't really be a problem. I mean, there are clearly a lot of podcasts out there that do that. And my stance was, I just wanted our podcast to be a little different than other ones. I just wanted it to be just be the three of us and and once i kind of started and it started working out i'm like i really like our chemistry i think we play off each other pretty well and i'm always hesitant to add a fourth person in there particularly a survivor who's really only going to be able to talk about their storyline so it's really not going to be the same type of show if we have survivors on here so that's that's my stance that's i don't necessarily think they would add a lot to the type of podcast that we're doing except for gene Oh God! Well, fuck, fucking Gene, right? <laughs> All right, Paul, you're up. All right, we have a question here from Buster, who writes, "Why do you guys get to call yourself Survivor historians? What makes you qualified to say that?" <laughs> yeah, well, we just—if um, you haven't noticed—we're really into ourselves on this podcast, and we can call ourselves whatever the f we want. So, uh, historian <laughs> sounded good, and that's what we went with. That's right. Um, if you want a serious answer. When I, the, 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 the purpose of this podcast, when I put it together, is I wanted to get people, either three or four people together that had been watching since season one. And that was really my only criteria. Like, you have to have been watching since the beginning, and you kind of have to be able to trace the evolution of the show, because that's one of the arguments I've made many times, that each season leads into the next, leads into the next. The players learn from mistakes. They learn from successes. So that was kind of why... I call us historians just for the simple fact that we've all been there since day one. Now, not to say that we're necessarily smarter or brighter than any other fan who was there since day one. There just aren't very many day one fans left. So I just grabbed as many as I could and said, all right, we're the historians now just because there aren't that many other uh, others than us out there. Anything to add to that? Well, I guess I can add. It's, it's, it's more along the lines of, I think, like you said, it's, it's chronicling fun stuff from the beginning. Obviously, the three of us are fans of sort of the older older sco- uh, seasons of Survivor, and we just think they're fun. And, you know, people have emailed in uh, to the podcast, and you'll hear some of the people's emails uh, in this podcast, and, and, and then there are other, you know, interactions that we've had with people where they say, ah, oh, gosh, you know, I really like your podcast. I started watching in Pearl Islands, or I started watching in uh, Token Chains, or I started watching uh, at Micronesia, or I started watching at Samoa. And it's like, you know, it's, it's not to say that they aren't as smart, you know, because you're certainly capable of going back and watching all of the DVDs and, you know, dissecting Survivor, knowing things in and out. I mean, I'd hard, I'd make it really hard to find somebody who knows, you know, most of the detail like Paul does. But, you know, a lot of the people know things about Survivor and, you know, can hold their own in a Survivor conversation. It's not like we're the foremost this, that, or the other on Survivor. But, you know, we've got a unique perspective because we've we've been through the show 
through the thick and the thin, uh, still with it as much as, you know, we kick and scream about it. And I mean, we've seen a lot of stuff in our time and I think that, you know, we've got uh, a fun way to verbalize it. So here we are. And we've discussed a lot how Mario has been pretty predominant in the survivor community since, oh, going a ways back. And I've spent the past, oh, I don't know, like three, four years now, um, being involved in the survivor community in my own way, being on, um, the tribe of survivor podcast but where the hell's where where did you come from jay because all of a sudden mario just had this guy named jay who knew all about survivor and i just had to take his word for it (laughs) i've uh well i haven't been as vote as as visit what's the word visible is the word well than that i'm a wordsmith um i've been friends with mario for a while and and I, I've, I've never physically met him, but I, I would email him stuff about Survivor all the time, as I'm sure lots of other people did. Uh, but, you know, he emailed me back and just said, holy crap, that was a good question, or that was a really good observation. He asked me, you know, my opinions on certain things, and I'm not, you know, maybe Mario was doing that with a bunch of other people. I'm sure he was, but I was somebody that was on his radar, and then uh, he introduced me to a group previous on, previously on Survivor, a uh, Facebook group, uh, a couple years ago, and he said, you're funny, go in there and be funny. And uh, so I went in there and tried to be funny. And some people thought I'm funny. Some people think I'm annoying. Either way, it doesn't matter. Um, I just started to kind of voice my opinions and just uh, kind of stake my claim from there. Yeah, just to give kind of my own, I mean, I'll back up what Jay said. But my own story is that I'm not sure a lot of people know this. I, I get accused. People say, oh, Mario likes to give himself a tongue bath and stuff. That's, I'm kind of sensitive that, to that criticism. But there's a certain reality that I've been writing about this show. I mean, since very early on, there was only like four websites back in the early days that wrote about Survivor. I was the head writer on one of the four, and I was the only one that was really doing strategy or intricacies about the game. I wasn't writing about spoilers. I wasn't doing interviews. I was just kind of explaining to the the viewer how Survivor works and how it would really play out if you were to play it. So so I have a unique perspective, and I've really kind of, for a lot of people, I was the writer that they they read kind of as they were started watching the show in seasons three, four, five, six in those early years. So that's the thing. I was... I mean, I don't know who else would be able to call themselves a survivor historian because th- I don't know any of the other writers that are still out there doing it other than me. And and again, like like Jay said, over the years, I would get emails from people that like my writing or wanted to talk to me. And I'd always file away kind of in my head the sharper writers or the funnier ones or the ones who I really thought had something to say about the show. And I would file them away like, well, I want to do something with these people in the future if I ever do another project. So I'm always jumping back and forth into new projects or or, or a group project. So Jay was someone on my radar like for the last seven years. Like I'm going to do something with this guy someday because he's really funny and he knows the show and he just he has really good communication skills. So this when historians came along, it was like, well, I know this guy Jay. I've been wanting to do a project with for years. And Paul, I knew from MySpace. So I'm like, this kid, I've never seen a kid who knows Survivor better than this kid. And he was young. He was just a little like he was at 14, 15. How old were you, Paul? Um. Well, when the show aired, I was 10. Don't answer I, that. Don't was, answer that. I was 10 when the show aired, and then our contact <laughs> probably started... I guess I was... Well, your contact, he's got it written down, Mark. He was over 18, it's cool. No, I yeah, it was like... I mean, I was probably... Uh, oh, I remember Cook Islands was airing, and I think at that point, I had at least like commented on um, some of your MySpace blogs, and I was... Uh, Sarah, what year was that? I was a junior in high school, I think. Almost 18. Mm -hmm. We round up. We'll say 18 for legal purposes. Yes, we were 18 when we first made contact. (laughs) And what did you think would happen here, Mr. Lanza? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, no, no, but Paul, yeah, Paul was someone I just knew from MySpace. He was one of my readers, and he was a really funny guy, and he knew Survivor, and I just knew him from a trivia tournament that I ran. This kid destroyed everybody. So I always would keep people in my head of people I want to do projects with in the future. So that's how this kind of came together and how I think you can call us all historians, because we're all season one viewers that have kind of come at it from different perspectives and ended up on this show together from different backgrounds. All right, so I'm going to move on to question four, and I love this one. This one isn't a question. This is just a story, and I love this story so much I had to put it in. This is from a guy named Michael Graga. I hope I pronounced that right. <clears throat> Here he goes. He said, my girlfriend was never a Survivor fan, but after we started dating, I convinced her to watch it with me. So we started with Australia, but we barely had time to watch it, and it became forgettable. But then about a year later, both our schedules cleared up, so I decided we're going to go with Pearl Islands. She hated Johnny Fairplay. Every episode, I'd ask her who she liked and who she disliked, and John was at the top of her hate list every episode. And I would just sit there and smile. Finally, we get to the family visit. And she died, dude, happens. And this look of sympathy and shock goes on my girlfriend's face. <laughs> she tells me throughout the challenge, she hopes John wins the challenge. She actually feels bad for him. And she wants him to do good. But then we get back to Camp Balboa and John and Thunder D start complimenting each other. And oh man, did my girlfriend flip out. All she could do was repeat, no, 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 over and over. It was like the scene in The Office when Toby returned and Michael Scott freaked out. She then whispered, I hate him. I hate him so much, multiple times. And that's how I got my girlfriend into Survivor. And there you go. That, I, that is the type of story I absolutely love, and now we've told it on the air. So thank you, Michael. Was your girlfriend, you know, on the bigger side, have maybe a beard, wear tie-dye? Oh, should I have said that in the root voice? I never even thought of the possibility. Perhaps. I hate him. I hate him so much. I hate him so much. Ring his neck like a damn chicken. <laughs> Give him a vote. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing of all Rupert is the set vote. <clears throat> Give him a vote. All right, so now we have Michael. You're now dating Rupert, so congratulations. I'm so sorry. All right. Here, uh, Tommy Fagan asks... This is just a small moment from Borneo that I didn't know if any of you will even know the answer to. But when Gretchen voted off Joel, why did she make the J backwards? I just noticed it a few weeks ago, and I can't, I can't not see it now. Is she making fun of the women are the dumbest thing next to cows quote, or was it just a mistake she made? It's kind of a weird mistake to write a J backwards. I've written J many times because my name starts with it. It's, it's a tough one to write backwards. I think it's literally... She's lampshading the joke uh, with Joel and how women are dumb because I it it's you know a lot of people say the uh, women are the dumbest thing next to cows and you know they mooed when they hold uh, held up their votes and stuff like that. Maybe you know another story, but the way I interpreted it uh, and the way I think you should interpret it is that Gretchen is like, "Ha ha, how dumb am I?" The way that again, you could be right. I don't know the answer to this one a hundred percent. The answer that I heard at the time was that for some reason Gretchen had a brain fart and she thought you were supposed to write the letters backwards so it would show through the side of the paper or something. And I remember hearing this at the time where Gretchen said, yeah, it was stupid. For some reason, I, my mind blanked and I thought they had to see it through the vote, which, which doesn't make sense because that's not even how you would write the J backwards, I don't think. Yes. I don't know, yeah. but I, I, I vaguely remember hearing about this she, in 2000. It, she, was just, it was like a brain fart. She misheard a Jeff's instructions. You will, one by one, you will go across to the voting confessional. Then you will write down the letters. <laughs> in, <laughs> write them as if they're going to be held up into a mirror in block letters. <laughs> Put it in, yeah. Rudy would have done really well with that one. This and is, Sue. This is what, this that is that might have helped Sue's spelling, actually, but... This is what you're going to do. You're going to go to the mirror in the bathroom. You're going to fog up the mirror, and then you're going to write it with the index finger. 
<laughs> so that yes. when I go to read the vote, I have to then refog the mirror in order to. <laughs> this is now an episode of Who Done It. Oh yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I don't. I don't 100 know the answer to that. But I've heard Jay's story, and I've heard the story that I told, and I've never heard Paul's story because Paul is retarded. <laughs> no, it was more just I. Uh, I, I I always noticed that I never heard anything about it, and I wasn't really uh, like I said. I was 10 when that episode aired, so it wasn't like I was checking the internet for uh, what was going on there either. So, I mean, all right. Paul barely knew how to spell a J forwards at that age. At that point, I mean, it was like it was pretty good if I could make it the right way. So. All right, uh, we have a question here from Carl Bainbridge. He writes, Survivor's popularity with the U.S. cannot be denied. However, I feel like outside the U.S., the popularity of the show never reached the same level, in particular here in the U.K., where a British version proved a notorious flop. What do you think it is about Survivor's format, etc., that makes it so popular with American audiences in a way it didn't with international audiences? Um, I'll speak to this first. I really, I've, I've seen like little bits and pieces of international versions, so I cannot say I'm an expert by any means because I know there are a lot of Survivor fans out there that you know do really follow these um, international versions. But from my take on it, it was almost like Survivor. The reason it really succeeded so well here was that it, the timing of it was so perfect that it was kind of the face of this revolution in in television with reality TV, and there was enough investment in it that enough people knew about it to keep it afloat for a number of years where it gained enough credibility and it was on the air long enough and stuff that it could really have that. I think the format of the show, I mean, it theoretically should really work universally. And I think there are cases of it. Like I know the, I mean, they did just have someone die on it, but the French version I know is going pretty, is going really strong and it is really popular in France too. So I don't know that it's, as much to do with the formatting as it is just kind of the timing of it. And I think in a lot of these countries, like the, the, the progressive show that really brought, I know specifically in Europe, um, the reality show that really brought around this change in television was big brother. And it kind of had a big, it has kind of a big backlash. If you talk about big brother in Europe and stuff, you kind of get, Oh God, big brother. And so that's kind of how I think survivor was just another kind of reality show that was coming out at the time. And if you look here in the U S you know, there's tons of you know reality shows that were coming out at that time that just failed immediately. But it was everyone was trying to jump on this bandwagon of reality TV, and I think it for the countries where it succeeded, it was probably the timing is right because I don't think that I don't know that there's that much about the show itself that works better for Americans. But I mean, maybe if you get into some of you know some of the other countries that aren't you know the Western world or Europe or North America or something, maybe there is something with fundamentally with how the game works. But I think a lot of the success in the U S is because of, of the timing uh, of the whole thing. Now I've never seen a foreign episode of survivor. So I don't really know what the other ones look like. Just my gut instinct on this one would say there's if, because clearly this, the American one keeps going and I don't think any of the foreign ones have really taken off and grabbed and grabbed a hold of a huge market. So <clears throat> my, my suspicion is the American one, if you go back and watch the early up uh, the opening couple seasons especially they were big and majestic and they were you know strategic and 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 dangerous all sorts of cool stuff but they were also cheesy like it's so over the top and it's kind of corny at times and it's kind of a uh, like that's how the funny 115 came about cuz the show is so goofy there's all this humor hidden in there so i'm guessing that the uh the foreign versions probably weren't as over the top and kind of corny and like uh, unintentionally funny as, as the American was sometimes, just because America tends to do everything in excess compared to other countries. That'd be my suspicion that Survivor kind of gained many types of audiences because there's many different reasons people watch it. Have you seen the clip of uh, Rupert on the Israeli Survivor? 
I have heard about it. I've never actually seen it. I've okay. actually never watched either. I heard a lot about it. Never sat down to watch it. It's the only one I know. I know people talk about Colanta, the uh, the French version of Survivor, which is one of like the uh, uh, most. I think it's more like one of the most popular shows in France. Uh, Britain is weird because when people think of like uh, England, you know, they they think of English people as 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 people being generally polite and you know they you know not really very insulting and stuff like that. But, you know, British people, especially towards television, towards ideas, towards concepts, you know, can be very negative. And I think that Paul is right. Like, Big Brother got a big backlash over there uh, for a while. But, you know, Big Brother UK is still around. I mean, they, they've they got it there. But, you know, Survivor was an American invention. And, you know, American things going over there don't work as well as British things coming here, <laughs> which usually work insanely well. So, you know, there's that. Um but I would say I would say for anyone with access to the YouTube, I don't know if YouTube still has the the clip anymore. But at one point it did. Someone showed me a clip of the Israeli version of Survivor, where one of the rewards literally was winning Rupert. <laughs> no, I I shit you not. Like the host, the propsty host was like, you know, you, you know, they're, they're speaking in another language, and there's there wasn't. Um, subtitles or anything but you can kind of you know you can see him he's explaining a challenge blah blah and then you know he kind of gets the want to know what you're playing for blah blah and then you know blah blah survivor of pearl island survivor of all stars rupert and then rupert comes bashing out of these fences wearing full tie-dye with the freaking machete and you know then he does his roar and i mean everyone's like oh they're all like oh rupert yeah rupert and, you know, they immediately all know Rupert, right? So they do this challenge, and literally the challenge is, you know how, like, on later seasons of Survivor, one of the one of the reward wins, which I totally love, it's like the Red Berets in Thailand, where they win some native of where they're living who basically says, yeah, all the shit around you, you can actually eat, you know? Like, Rupert can kind of come out, and Rupert's going to help them with their camp and stuff like that. It is the most beautiful, like, 13 minutes of your life that you could spend watching this clip of Rupert on the Israeli Survivor because he's so freaking inept at anything. It doesn't really build up the legend of Rupert, but you kind of have the Rupert is a flawed hero who just, you know, struck, you know, lightning in a bottle in Survivor Pearl Islands. It is just an amazing clip of television. Please go find it. It is awesome. It would have been better if Big Tom had been the reward and he would have come out and eaten all their ham. That would have been the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, I was just waiting for that joke. Um, <clears throat> to follow up on my point on American shows kind of being more over the top, it's just funny. I was in uh, Europe just recently. I was there. I was following The Apprentice, The UK Apprentice with Lord Sugar, which it's a cool show. I really liked it, but it was so played completely straight. There was like not much comedy in it. It's not over the top. It's not corny. It's so much different than the Donald Trump version that I can see why foreign versions of Survivor might be different if they don't have that cheesiness, that over the top cheesiness factor. I can see why they might not kind of take off. Not to say I like the UK Apprentice. It was just a totally different show. All right, let's move on here. Uh, this is from uh, Chupa Cabras. He writes in. He say, he wants a, he uh, wants to talk about Survivor One, a Borneo issue. He said, "Talk about the foods for survivors controversy." He said there were interviews I recall made in the fall of 2000 where many survivors from season one said in jokingly kind of ways that they were always getting food out of production, like they'd borrow they'd get an apple or something from the cameraman or something. He said. All of a sudden, this did a 180 when we got closer to Survivor 2 being released and the attempts to make it. Then, so the producers tried to make the first season sound like it was harder than it really was. So he wanted us to talk about that. Like, there were all these interviews with season one players saying, oh, it was easy to get food. And then they changed their tune once we got closer to Australia because the producers told them not to say that anymore. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about this. 
this is something Chupacat, he writes in these, these really intricate questions with really detailed interviews that I might not have heard of before. This is one I don't, I don't recall a lot of this stuff where survivors were saying that they got a lot of free food during Borneo. Do you remember that? Have you ever heard anything like that? I've, I for one don't really know about it. Uh, no, I, I yeah. tend not to, I tend not to listen to survivors being interviewed because you ultimately can't really trust what they're saying one way or the other. Not that survivors are, aren't trustworthy or something like that, but especially in those early seasons, and especially Borneo with the Stacey Silman gag order and the, you know, yeah. all the lawsuit stuff that was going on out there. Who knows what they were going to saying? Were they saying true things? Were they saying what CBS told them to say? Like you can't ever like go, well, I heard a survivor be interviewed in a paper and you know, I'm going to take that as fact then. Like you, you can't. Like we literally yeah. don't know. Like we're literally all guessing. And you can kind of look at all the clues and make it, make it a point. But I mean I will say you watch the original Survivor Borneo. You see Rudy like in the kitchen making food. I mean he's talking about how he's going to take the rice and mix it with the canned papaya they got and stuff like that. Like you didn't see all the foodstuffs. But I mean if you read between the lines you can see that they were much more equipped than in later seasons where they basically are like all right screw it. Here's a machete in a pot. Go nuts. What what's funny is if you read Mark Burnett's book again, this is a book I talk about all the time. I think it's called Survivor: The Ultimate Game. I forget what it's name called, but just look for Mark Burnett Survivor Borneo book. It's on Amazon. It's like a, a penny right now. It's one cent. There's no reason people shouldn't know about that book. But Burnett talks time and time again in his book about how how dicey it was, how they had to keep the contestants happy because they were scared they were going to revolt. Where there were several times during the first season where the players were so fed up with things that they just, they just threatened not to play anymore. They were going to stage a walkout and just not do anything or not go to tribal council. And and CBS and uh, Burnett were terrified this was going to happen. So it wouldn't surprise me if they gave a lot of concessions to the season one players just to keep them from revolting because that was a big deal. They really had to keep make sure these players finished the game. So there could be some truth to that. I don't know. I've never heard a whole lot about this story. And you'll see a couple more emails from from Chupacabra. So he's that's real similar questions, kind of conspiracy ones. He wants to know what we've heard about them. Okay, uh, Joshua M writes in in the Survivor Africa podcast. It was mentioned that Teresa's performance of "The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow" may have been the reason that Survivor Africa wasn't released on DVD for a long period of time. While this may have played a factor, the more likely reason it took such a long time for the season to come to DVD was due to the lack of sales of the previous season DVDs. The truth is, most live-action game shows don't sell well on DVD, and I'm guessing Survivor is no exception. Even though there are a lot of Survivor fans, that doesn't necessarily translate into DVD sales. Well, what do you mean? Who watch? I mean, honestly, now, who rewatches Survivor? Who rewatch? Oh, <laughs> crap no yeah. I, I i buy that for a dollar that 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 totally makes sense uh, i think that you know song things you do have to get some license but with the money that survivors pulling in whatever the rights were they could probably do it but i think that you know it, it's all it's all a factor like i don't think that you know they were like the sun will come out tomorrow well we won't release the dvd because of this one song that t-bird sings during the hold your hand up challenge and stuff like that but on, on the other hand i'm sure you know that that could be a when you're kind of doing corporate stall, you know, you can talk about lots of things going. They're like, oh, well, we had to get the rights to this one song, too. I mean, you know, crap, we had to write a whole letter and, you know, wait for a response and, you know, do all this <laughs> stuff. Sure. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to say is that is I hear this all the time that reality shows don't sell on DVD. And if people know who the winner is, they're not going to watch it again. And this absolutely is a dagger to my heart when I hear this because these shows are so much better when you rewatch them and you can appreciate how they're crafted and how the storytellers tell the whole story. And Survive Me, and it's, 
it's, it's I say it about Survivor. It's true about the other shows too, The Mole, The Apprentice, any of them. Like, you have to watch these several times to appreciate the intricacy and all the editing and everything. So, I hear this all the time, and I know it's a fact that that Survivor and other reality shows don't sell that well on DVD, and it just kills me that that's the case. You guys. I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but please, you guys, go buy these seasons. They're so much better when you watch them multiple times. I, I can't stress that enough. All right, we have a question here from Billy Gross. He writes us, While I was listening to Pearl Islands Part 2, you said that Austin was possibly going to be left out of the reunion slash rites of passage, and I had a thought. Do you all think the fact that during the airing of Pearl Islands, both Jenna Maraska and Sue Hawk quit All-Stars had any effect on how Austin was treated by production? Because to me, it totally did, since they wouldn't want to leave them out next season, so they begrudgingly let him come to the reunion and whatnot because of it. Um, that's a very possible theory, and you know, I hadn't really thought too much about the treatment of Austin until we you know, discussed it um, during the Historian's podcast, but... Um, that would that seems to me like it could be a possible thing. I don't know if you guys have any insight on whether or not that's true. I don't have any insight other than I read this question. I'm like, that makes perfect sense. That's an excellent observation that I've never thought of before. And I have no doubt that there's probably some truth to that. You always... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that, that they wanted to make an example out of Austin and, and make him come off like a little bitch on TV. And all of a sudden, the next season, they get suing and getting borderline sexually harassed. And then you got... You got Jenna with the whole, should that really be called a quit or should it not with her dying mother, which is going to be a powerful episode. So they can't really treat Austin differently than they treated Jenna and Sue. So that totally makes sense to me because it does change the way they treated Austin once we got closer to the reunion where, like the, like he said, there was rumors that Austin wasn't even going to be allowed to the, the reunion show and then he was there. So yeah, I think something changed and I think this, this letter's dead on. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to think about this, but Austin quits in Pearl Islands. You know, Mike Scoopin was medevaced in, in yeah. Australia. Austin quits in Pearl Islands. We have Jenna Maraska who leaves at the beginning of All Stars because of her mother. And then we have Sue who leaves because of the sexual harassment, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. next person to leave the game is Janu and Palau, right? Yes. Yes. This makes sense on a lot of levels because the All Star quits, the two All Star quits are such unique quits. And I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not excusing them in any way, but I mean this is you know Austin basically was done. You know he he his his temple was done. He could go no further, and he was like I'm no further. Vote me out. And I think that Survivor they literally wanted to make an example out of him. You know just to you know all these people we cast you on the show, we give you the opportunity of a lifetime. Don't frickin' waste it because not only are you quitting, but you are also spitting on the face of every single person who applied. You know and and yeah, people apply and they have no shot in hell of ever getting on Survivor. But I mean there were semifinalists, there are finalists. You know there are so many people who are so so close, but they decide to take these 16 people to go out there on Pearl Islands and for you to go out there and you know go a week or two and then say i'm good i'm done no more you know it, it's 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 really sad that they can't then go back and recast somebody so you know they were they were a little hard on austin because they were literally trying to set the example and say don't freaking quit if you go on the show don't quit because we're going to treat you like crap if you quit and then the very next season <laughs> jenna and sue two all-stars quit <laughs> yeah. for I'm not going to say legitimate reasons, but it's not, I'm, you know, my body is spent, I'm done. It was, you know, my mother is dying and I was sexually harassed, which, you know, are, are two completely different subjects. So, you know, they sort of had to, I'm not saying treat the kid gloves, but I mean, they, I, maybe they had to do a little bit of revision sort of thing on Austin. So you can see Austin got treated so shitty 
in his quit because he was trying to be made an example of. Then they had Jenna and they had Sue and they were like, uh, <laughs> and then Janu quits in Palau and she quits on the jury. And again, they make an example out of Janu, you know, mm-hmm. which is then going to be the new example. Uh, Austin yeah. was kind of an example. That was that was like three seasons ago. We don't remember that far back, do you? We don't buy these on yeah. DVD. No, we don't. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the the Jenna Maraska one in particular. That's a that's an interesting moment in Survivor history. I have a lot to say about that one, and I'm sure people will want to hear what we all have to say on that one. So we'll, we'll save that. But yeah, that 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 one to me seems like it may have influenced the Austin one. I think that's I think that's accurate. All right, uh, moving on. Sean Mullen, this is an excellent question, and I'm kind of embarrassed to answer this one. How many times have you watched an average season of Survivor, and which one have you seen the most times? I am not joking that I have seen Borneo at least 50 times. I'm shit you not. I mean, it used to be on an endless loop. I was so obsessed and fascinated by, by the show when it first came out. It was just on an endless loop. I'd tape the episodes. We'd rewatch them. My wife and I would watch every episode three times the day it aired. One time, and then rewatched it again, and then I'd watch it again before I would write, write about it because I wanted to make sure I had all the quotes and details. So it was at least, I mean, three times that day. So Borneo, I've seen, I mean, 50 times. I'm guessing Australia, Africa are not that far behind, and I know that's, this sounds obsessive. I know there's people that have seen these seasons more than I have to, but I'm, I'm shitting you not when I've watched these, these seasons. I mean, double digits is understating it. It's way past that. And the season that I've seen the most, probably Australia, because for years that was kind of my, at, at the early days, that was my favorite one. So Australia, I think, is the season I've seen the most. Yeah, well, actually, I, I share the same on Australia. I was kind of trying to calculate here, and I would say conservatively I've seen Australia 50 times. Um, yeah. especially when it was, it was kind of like sad and pathetic a little bit when I look back on it, but like when those first few seasons came out, I had them recorded on a recorded on a VHS. And what I would do is I would, I just would always be looping through the seasons. It would, you know, and I didn't have Borneo at the time because well, I had the first three seasons recorded and I hadn't really gotten to the phase yet that I would start rewatching it. It wasn't until kind of Africa concluded that I like kind of stumbled upon one of these tapes. I'm like, Oh, I should rewatch these. And um, I had already given my dad the go at that time that he said, can I record over these Survivor tapes? You know, he needs tapes to record football or whatever else people did to record, you know, on VHSs back in the day. And I said, okay, well, just leave me Australia, but you can record over the other two. And so he records over all of Borneo except for the finale. Um, but I saved all of Africa, had all of Australia. And so I didn't get to rewatch Borneo until 2003 when it came out on DVD. So Borneo is a little bit behind um, some of the other earlier seasons. Um, but when I had, I had, I had Australia and I had Africa and I watched those in loop and then Africa when I add, just kept adding them to the loop. So as years go on, I've watched it less frequently. And, and even now I obviously don't watch as much as I used to, but you know, being when I was like in, you know, upper elementary school, middle school, I didn't really like listen to music. I didn't get CDs. Like I watched Survivor. It would be on in the background when I would clean my room. I would put it on before I went to bed. I put it on, and so there was a, a huge gap where that was that was always what was on and stuff. So fifty is a good conservative. Um, if, if I can be kind of close to what Mario has, then uh, I don't feel too crazy about myself. Okay, uh, not fifty for me. Um, <laughs> Jay had a social life. Jay had a social life and a girlfriend. <laughs> um. <laughs> I would probably say if you're talking about every season of Survivor from one through you know twenty that we're on now, I would probably say that the average I've seen a season is probably about five. 
Um, there are some of these later seasons. I've, I've seen every season more than once because all of the recent seasons I've had on DVD and I've, you know, for podcasting purposes or for, you know, write-up purposes or for joke-making purposes or something like that, I've uh, DVR'd all, this, all the episodes of Survivor and I've at least rewatched them once, probably more than once. So probably the current seasons of Survivor I've seen at least twice to three times. No more than that, but uh, it's not one and done for me. I'll put it that way. Um, I remember very clearly because... Uh, the DVD releases of Survivor. I mean, they released Borneo and Outback, like, you know, 2004, 2005-ish or so. And then they released uh, they released All-Stars, if, I, if I'm remembering they go, my I collection. I think they went 182 is actually the yeah, one. Yeah, 182, yeah. Because I it was remember around. it was right after... Right after all, it was the May after All-Stars was concluding that Borneo came out on DVD. Right, yes, exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, so Borneo came out, and then All Stars, and then Australia, and those are the three I had. And then two thousand four, then I guess because it was the spring. Right. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I was with you there. And then, uh, and then they came out with uh, Outback a little bit later, and then they came out with Pearl Islands uh, in in uh, two thousand six. And I remember this because I was married uh, in July of two thousand six, and I had those four seasons of Survivor on DVD. And I was living, um, I was living with people at the time. I wasn't living with my fiance. I hadn't moved in or anything yet. And uh, I have trouble sometimes going to sleep. And one of the ways I go to sleep sometimes, you know, especially when I was living in that room, was I had my TV very close to my bed, and I would put on a DVD and literally fall asleep to it. And so I would say for a good solid year, year and a half, I would fall asleep to a Survivor episode. I'd literally put on a Borneo episode and turn it on, and you know. I would be half paying attention to it and half falling asleep. And then once I was done with Borneo, if I had another season, which I didn't for a while, I'd just go back to episode one and then redo it. So I don't know. For a lot of those early ones, those early DVD releases, I must I'm I probably have seen those ones, you know, thirty to fifty times, but you know, I was half awake some of the times and not, so I don't know how you quantify that. But uh, some of those early DVDs I have seen literally over and over again. And I listened to the DVD commentary of All-Stars just a <laughs> bajillion times. Because the first, the first commentary set with Rob C. and Tina and Rudy and Jenna Maraska is frickin' hilarious. The, yes, the, it really the, is. The second commentary with, uh, with Lex, Kathy, Sheehan, and uh, Alicia is so bitter, bitter, bitter that it's kind of fun in and of itself. And then the, uh, the final commentary with Rob, Mariano, and Rupert and stuff like that is literally Rob just going... Hey man, it's a game, and Rupert going, "Yep, <laughs> damn straight." And and Amber saying like two words, and Jenna Lewis, you know, saying two words, but really it was just Rob kind of going, "Yeah, all right," and Rupert just going, <laughs> "Yep." <laughs> I always remember that first the commentary you pointed out the first one with Rob C and and uh, oh, Jenna gold. and Tina. It's Rudy. gold. It's just it's Rob baiting Rudy. It's like Rudy doesn't even realize that Rob C's making fun of him the entire time. So Rob's setting him up for punchlines and Rudy, of course, does exactly what you think Rudy will do and Rob just giggles the whole time. Oh, and Jenna and Tina on a roll and they call Jenna Lewis, or they call Doctor <laughs> Jenna Lewis Doctor Doctor Jetta and Nurse Jerry talking about the braid parasites and stuff. Yeah, it's very it's very funny. Yeah, no, that that's all really good because you're right. Rob C is driving it. When you have someone as funny and as as as, as well done as Rob C, he can kind of drive it. Rudy's there for you know his, you know, off color comments from time to time. But I feel like Maraska, Jenna Maraska, is literally the unsung hero of that commentary. She is so good and so on all the time. You know, she's it, funny. Yeah, she's that's funny, and and it's. 
you know, you have to remember as well, like Amazon came out, what, 2002, 2003? And then the uh, the DVD for All-Stars was released 2004. And, I mean, we were all kind of like, Jenna Maraska is such a shit winner. You know, and that's yep. kind of, you know, sticking out in your head. Then you listen to the DVD, and, like, literally my opinion of Jenna Maraska changes listening to her comment on the All-Stars DVD. No joke. Okay, we've reached, totally a, new, we've reached a new lowest Survivor Historians that we're now podcasting about a commentary about a Survivor season. <laughs> nah, that's thorough, bitch. <laughs> I got to follow up on what I said. That I said I've seen these seasons fifty times. That goes way down once we hit All Stars because that's when I really kind of stopped losing interest in the series. So have, I've you, seen All have Stars, you not seen Fan versus Favorites fifty times, Mario? I've seen it twice. <laughs> <laughs> once when it aired, and once when I researched the funny one fifteen, and that's it. And so, yeah, after once we get past about the Palau and stuff, I haven't seen most of these seasons more than two or three times because I just wasn't that interested. But I will say, if you want to ask me what I've what I've you know, uh, I've seen these seasons like 50 times, but what you really should ask is how often have I listened to the soundtrack? Because that season one soundtrack that came <laughs> out on CD, I, I've listened to that 250 times. Like, I used to have that on my in my car. I would listen to that when I was writing my Survivor stories because I would think of storylines when I was driving to work and I would just play that soundtrack in the background every day on the way to and from work to get ideas. So, I mean, that thing, I've I've listened to that soundtrack 10 times more than I've seen any of the seasons. That should have been a red flag to my fiance. One time she caught me listening to a Survivor soundtrack while doing homework, but luckily she <laughs> stuck around. Well, no, I mean, hats off to Russ Landau, by the way, the composer of the music for Survivor, because he does an amazing job. Uh, Survivor, the Survivor intro, you know, I watch a lot of television, some good, some, you know, reality television, I suppose. But, uh, you know, intros, I think, are really interesting. And I mean, I would put Survivor's intro up against anything. And mm-hmm. it's it's partially, you know, the way that they have the clips and the pictures, but it's also the 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 theme that changes slightly from season to season. But Russ mm-hmm. Landau in his compositions, he's a, he's an epic composer. You know, he composes epic sounding music. You know, John Williams has a John Williams y kind of sound for movies and stuff like that, and he's mainly movies. But you know, you've got like Hans Zimmer and you've got like some people that, you know, have that real full sound. Russ, Russ Landau for for television uh show composition is very very good at what he does it's almost nfl films like you yeah you watch like nfl films paul the old clips of the old uh football they've got like the epic music in the background no no i I watched that on loop but yeah well no (laughs) the thing is is that i don't watch all those things but it's it's if you go back and watch those nfl films it's it's the clips of those guys playing in the 60s and 70s and it's set to like this epic music i can't even really Mm -hmm. describe it other than it's the nfl films music i used to do homework and write papers to that so totally hats off to you yeah, I've always argued that the music was just as big a star as the players and the show itself in season one in particular. That that music was fantastic. And like I said, I still remember that soundtrack. And I remember uh, track three was a song I used to call Rudy's Theme, and that was my favorite. And that's my all-time favorite Survivor piece of music. And if you're if you're a historians, go back. I think the first two uh, episodes of the Survivor Historians, the one we did with Beatles and the uh, Reborneo one, starts out with that theme. Yep. All right, let's move on. Oh, okay, this is me. Uh, Joshua Muir writes in, and Joshua Muir writes, You should discuss the stories around Austin's quit. Rhino has claimed on Survivor Oz that basically probes forced Austin to quit, threatening to hold him at tribal council until Austin said, I quit on camera, which T and Dara have denied. Interviews 10 years later are not too meaningful, so what were people saying at the time? Again, this is why you don't pay attention to interviews, then or now, because yeah. stories change all the time. Um, th- to me, I think that there is probably some merit to the thing where they were trying to pigeonhole Austin to say at least the words I quit, maybe out of context so that they could, they could you know, 
take it out of context in some way. I think they literally want him to say, yeah, I'm quitting on TV because they knew they were going to set an example out of the guy. I, I don't know if, it, you know, they basically held them and say, you're not leaving until Austin says he's quitting. I don't know because it seems to me the fishy thing is this, is that, yeah, Austin quit. I'm not saying he didn't quit. He did quit. But he quit in such a way where they got back to camp. They had to vote somebody out. And Austin said, vote me out. They were all going to go to tribal council to literally write his name on a piece of paper. He didn't call in for medical. He didn't call in for probes. They, you know, they didn't specially take him out of the game. But uh, they wanted to paint in a certain way. And I think that they literally were going to prolong that tribal council and kind of manipulate uh, situations until he said something of a sort that they can use. But did probes hold them at ransom and say, you motherfuckers aren't going anywhere until Austin says I quit? Uh, I don't know, but uh, I think that there's probably a little bit of truth to that. I haven't heard much about this. I don't really know. But what's funny is we must have gotten five or six emails about this question. Yeah. This is something that that a lot of people are fascinated by. Yeah. And I don't remember remember it being a controversy at the time. I just remember it later came out, well, Austin had staph infections. He was Mm -hmm. really sick. But I don't remember there being a big conspiracy over this. So No. Yeah. There's no... Go ahead. I was going to say, you can believe what, like Jay said, you can believe whatever you hear in interviews, but depending on when the interview is given or what the person's agenda is at the time, they could say anything. So I really, I mean, it's, I think multiple people could view the same event different ways in this circumstance is what probably happened. Like a lot of things, and like why we recommend rewatching the seasons, because you can glean a lot just by rewatching a season, but you know, do we, I mean, we are survivor historians. We are literally chronicling survivor and its impact in America and really just the cool things that you can get at by watching survivor. And, you know, some of us have talked to people who've been on the show and can get some sort of insider knowledge, but we are not the end all be all. We have not been out there. We don't mm-hmm. know what it's like to be on the show. We don't quite know all the production behind the scenes. We have a good idea through some books and some interviews and things like that, but ultimately we don't have firsthand knowledge and we don't claim to. But at the same thing around this Austin quit, you have to remember at the time Austin quit and the show painted him as like that's that that guy is a sucky guy because he quit Survivor and we're not supposed to like him. And you know what we did at the time? We didn't like Austin. You know what I mean? And and I think that, you know, with time, and I think the fact that because there have been so many fucking quitters on Survivor, <laughs> you know, you look back and you're like, well, Austin's, it's like Jerry being a villain. It's like Jerry wasn't <laughs> so bad, yeah. you know, and it's like Austin's quit wasn't so bad. He went 21 days or whatever, and then he was like, I'm done because I haven't had clothes for 21 days, and they were all going to vote him out at Tribal Council, but, you know, Austin's like, oh, what a freaking quitter, and it's like, well, it's just all in context, right? And at the time, we hated Austin, so all these Austin's stories are coming out after the fact because now everyone's like yeah that was sort of a weird rap that he got austin's now seen more as a jackie robinson type figure <laughs> he, he blazed the trail for a legion of quitters well he he would wear the number 42 but he he didn't have any clothes he, he sold he sold them at the market and uh i'm about done talking about austin because i'm tired of it so i'm gonna move on number the next one we're gonna tackle here michael whitmore writes how would you have ranked the first seven winners as of 2003. How would the general audience have ranked them? And how would you rank them today? Well, Mario will be able and Jay will be able to discuss a little bit more as far as recapping what the what the fan community thought at the time. But from my perspective, I feel like Vesepia, Jenna, Sandra, underwhelming winners, and the other four uh, seen as much better winners, although Brian being maybe the most disliked as far as personality-wise. What do you guys have to say about that? That's how you think it would have been viewed at the time? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's. I, I would say it's. I get asked this question a lot, and basically, again, I go back to it. The way it's generally seen in Survivor is that male winners good, female winners bad. So that's kind of the way it was always seen. Well, you had Hatch, who was awesome. You had Haidaku, who was awesome. You had Ethan, who was a nice guy. Then you had Tina. Well, she won because Colby screwed up. Then you had Jenna, who didn't do anything. You had Vesepi, who didn't do anything. And who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting Sandra. someone. Sandra, who, yeah, who didn't do it. So, so I mean, that's generally how it was seen at the time. And I, I've always hated that since day one. I've, I've really stuck up for Vesepia in particular. And over the years, I've, I've stuck up for Tina. But, yeah, at the time, I would say... If you liked Hatch, you loved that he won. If you hated him, you hated that he won. But other than that, he and Heidek were really seen as the really good two winners. Yeah, the legend, legend of Richard Hatch really grows. And it's just the fact that, you know, half the winners, you know, or over half the winners from the first seven seasons are female. And, uh, you know, then there's three of seven winners are male. And, you know, there's there's Ethan, who was pretty awesome. And there was Heidek, who was just Mr. Freeze. But, I mean, you look at all that stuff. And, I mean, the legend of Richard Hatch really grows. And, I mean, Richard deserves all the credit in the world for going out there and winning the first season of Survivor. But I think that, you know, with subsequent winners, people were like, ah, not as good as Hatch. Ah, not as good as Hatch. Ah, not as good as Hatch. I mean, Hatch was the be-all end-all mario talked earlier and again i keep I, I hate keep alluding to the all-stars podcast i'm literally going to keep this under 15 seconds here but you know mario talked about how sestronino probably had the biggest target on his back uh, going into all-stars that's probably true numbered one a though was hatch i mean it oh, was yeah. sestronino and hatch and then the rest could go off them fuck themselves yeah would you guys agree with me that at the time if you had asked people in 2003 who was the best winner in survivor history it would really be Heidek or Hatch. I don't know anybody who would have answered anybody but those two. Correct. Some people might have said Ethan just because they really liked Ethan. Yeah. But, you know, that's a tougher sell. I think you would say probably Hatch or Heidek. Yeah. So I guess we'd have to say how would we rank them today? Um, well, I'll definitely say from, from my perspective, it it's taken it's taken a lot of time for me to really appreciate Vesepia's game. And definitely I'm at the point now that I that I can really see that she really is a badass and so um but she still is by well i don't know between i mean i i don't love vesepia but i can really really now appreciate the game that she's that that she played in the in marquesas and um obviously that that same um you know change of thought came from me for sandra quite a bit earlier there but um, it's almost like no one's really has gone down for me over the years. I just have been able to more carefully appreciate each of their of their games, and they're all badasses. Yeah, I will say this is something I hate doing. People ask me to do this all the time, ranking winners, and I absolutely hate it. I refuse to ever rank winners because really that's a veiled way of just winner bashing. That means you're going to shit on certain winners. And I hate winner bashing. I just I'm a big fan of if you won Survivor, you were an awesome player. Let's just leave it at that. Why do you have to qualify it past that? However, since uh, Michael <laughs> asked nicely, let's fucking rank some winners here. <clears throat> All right. Oh, my God. I will say, well, if you look at my, I wrote columns back in the day during, uh, in particular, Marquesas and Pearl Islands, and I was really high on Vesepia and Sandra at the time. In fact, at one point I said, I, I think I made this prediction that in, in, in five years, people might be talking about Vesepia as the best survivor player of all time, which never happened. Yeah. And then I, I wrote in Sanders, well, Sanders is an even better version of Vesepia because she does the same thing. And I, this is something I still uh, um, believe to this day, that Sandra and Vesepia are basically perfect survivor players in that they have no agenda other than not being voted out. And that's the thing. They don't overthink the game. And Sandra's got this weakness where she could get nailed real early in the game because she has horrible uh, physical abilities. So I would have to say if I were to rank the winners, I think Vesepia 
is and I've said I've used this phrase before. She's God's gift to Survivor. Like, there's almost no way Vesepia would ever be voted out. She's a fantastic athlete. She doesn't make enemies. She stays out of drama. She's smart enough to align top if she has to. She can start fights between people, between people and not take uh, flack for it. So. Vesepia and Sandra are right at the top of my list just because that type of player is so dangerous and will always succeed. I mean, it's almost impossible to get rid of them once you get to the mid-game. But I will say that since going through our podcast and talking about some of the nuances of these winners, Tina, what Tina pulled off in Australia is is really impressive. And I've uh, there's a phrase I used to use. What was it? That, that Hatch invented the game. Tina outsmarted the game. Uh, Ethan outlasted the game or no, Ethan transcended the game and then Vesepia mastered the game or something like that but what Tina did is that her whole strategy was based on the way that season one was perceived and the more I think about that, the more ingenious I think that was, that she knew that people saw alliances and backstabbing as bad things, so she set this tone in Australia where, well, you know, the good guys have to win this time, we want to make America proud of us and well, make sure I'm included in that good guy list since I'm a mom and I'm spunky and I'm the team mom so, I mean, she set up the tone of the season where, of course, she's going to succeed because it's tailor-made for someone like her. So I'm a real, really big fan of Tina. So it, I'm just going to ba- uh, go completely reversed on what the general consensus was. And I think Tina, Vesepia, Sanda are fantastic winners, and I think Heidek's right there, too. And those four, I think, are my, I think, the best winners. Um, I would really, I mean, I, I think that you're right. The as we've been talking, I think that that it becomes more clear to me that Vesepia and Sandra are on two sides of almost the same coin. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike you, I would rather take the Vesepia side of the coin. Um, again, I, I really don't want this to be interpreted as Sandra bashing because Sandra is. If I if I have a Hall of Fame for Survivor characters, can't Sandra's, nobody trust that bitch, Jay. Oh man, Sandra's first ballot. I mean, in, in a very exclusive class, uh, because every time Sandra is on my TV, I smile because everything she does is amazing. So hats off there. And she's won twice and deserved the win both times. So <laughs> there's also that. Um, but you do mention that, you know, Sandra was the first boot on Drake if they had gone to tribal council and they didn't. No thanks to Sandra, really. Well, I guess thanks to Sandra because, you know, she spoke Spanish at the village and got them all those fucking supplies. <laughs> but I mean, you know, she certainly wasn't adding super strength or, or you know, anything to those first couple of challenges or whatever. So, you know, it was it was kind of by the grace of Drake that Sandra didn't go away. And then, you know, once once Sandra gets in the game a little bit, she's super deadly. Uh, but with Vesepia, I don't think Vesepia has that weakness because Vesepia yeah. is a decent athlete. So, you know, Vesepia is usually not a first target boot like Sandra is. Also, Sandra did some things actively in, in both of the times she's played. She's done some things that, like, could have gotten her voted out and yet somehow it it all worked out okay in the end and you know mm-hmm. people who are like big diehard sander fans could say well she planned it that way all along and to me i i kind of say oh, that's dicey logic but like either way it, they weren't crippling mistakes in any way but i you know sander did actively make some things that could have gone really wrong whereas with Vesepia, it's like show me where Vesepia went wrong yeah she doesn't go wrong she doesn't <laughs> go wrong she's so good um yeah. there are certain people that i think uh you know to use a baseball term pitched a no-hitter uh, some people, I think, pitched a perfect game, which is, a you know, like a no-hitter, but, you know, mm-hmm. no base runners at all. I think that Vesepia and Brian Heideck pitched no-hitters, um, and Vesepia pretty much pitched a no-no, or a, a perfect game. And I wouldn't say Brian, because Brian did just, you know, spot clave three votes, but Brian paid, played an absolutely perfect season of Survivor. I think Vesepia played an absolutely perfect season of Survivor, uh, and Hatch did well. 
uh, and stuff like that. You know, some of those seasons like Tina and Jenna where, you know, it could have gone another way with another flip. Um, I'm just going to put down a rung, but I'm not one of those people that really does a lot of ranking or bashing. Yeah, and I, and I, you were saying you're disagreeing with me and that you'd put Vesepia over Sandra. I would actually do that too. What I said at the time, I had said that Sandra was like Vesepia 2.0, but I've revised that kind of over the years. Where basically I just describe Vesepia as God's gift to survive. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. So I stick by that. Like Heidek and Vesepia, I mean, those are some special players. That that is the absolute elite of Survivor player right there. Good luck beating Heidek or Vesepia in Survivor. And then I just have to rank Tina up there because I think it's so amazing how she basically used season one as one. One of her weapons so i i think i just those are my big three that i love a pattern i'll say and the last thing i'll say on this as well is that a lot of times people who are really 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 good and there are exceptions there aren't there are exceptions but people who are really really good and pitched almost a perfect game or an absolute no-no game of survivor a lot of times they're boring television you're just gonna have to get over yeah. that fact Vesepia, not the greatest television pitched a per- almost a perfect game of survivor heidick not the greatest television, you know, pitched a, a no-no in Survivor. Um, Earl, Yule, Kim Spradlin, you know, people have, they have fans out there because, you know, they're all seemingly wonderful people. Uh, it, some of them shoot puppies, but everyone else seems to be like <laughs> seemingly wonderful people and, and stuff like that. And they totally deserve their wins. They totally deserve all the fans they get and stuff like that. But, you know, there were other winners like Fabio. Fabio was fantastic television, right? Would people rank him near the top of their winners list? Probably not, but you know, maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. Paul, you ranked your new ones, right? Making sure I'm not skipping yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't rank him all the way down, but I, I did say that. I mean, and actually, as Mario was about to say his name, I, I would think I would put Tina at the top too. Um, with you, son of a bitch. I know. I <laughs> ahead of Sandra. Sandra, don't come hunt me down. But oh, <laughs> but, but I said they're all badasses. So I, that's about as deep as I'm gonna go. Yeah. Nobody named Jenna. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, from Andrew Archibald, he says, "I'm looking at ordering the early seasons of Survivor now that you guys have covered them. Do you have a recommended source from which I could order these? Do we? Oh, am I so happy that you asked that. All right." You know, I run this website, The Funny 115, and it's completely free. I don't charge for it. I don't have any ads or anything. I mean, there's no pop-up ads. But it costs a lot of money, and there's a huge amount of bandwidth, in particular with this podcast. This podcast, I mean, some of these files are hundreds of megabytes. I mean, they're big. And so I'm getting screamed at all the time by my uh, web host, and I always have to kind of upgrade to get a bigger plan. So it's expensive to keep The Funny 115, and it's expensive to keep these historian podcasts hosted. So... What I've done is I have a link on the Funny 115. It's right at the top. It says, please help support the Funny 115. If you go to that, you can order any season of Survivor on DVD. And what happens through this page, I get like 6% of the sales, which isn't a lot. But if like hundreds of people do it, it helps. I mean, it really adds up. So if you're ever going to order a season of Survivor on DVD, please go through the Funny 115 because that's the only way I can keep this historian podcast and the website up. It's just... In five years, they may not be there if I don't get if like uh, help in ho- in hosting it because it's expensive. So, you go to my my funny one fifteen support page. I have all the Survivor seasons. I have every good book ever written about Survivor. I have a link to it. It shows you exactly which ones I would recommend. It just there's all sorts of good stuff. So, please, if you're ever going to order a season of Survivor, which everyone should be doing, because these are so much better on multiple views. But that is the site. Please, I beg you to order from. Do it, folks. Yeah. Also, Jay had a site, but don't buy it from him. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that's the answer. Paul, 
Anything to add to that? To my shameless plea? <laughs> nope. Go to go to the Funny Man One Fifteen. Order it that way. Go do it. All right, Zach Reddick asks, since you more than likely won't discuss seasons as late as Micronesia, discuss how Johnny Fairplay's legacy as one of the Survivor's top vil- five villains was affected by his awful run in Fans vs. Favorites. First of all, you never know. I don't want to say yes, I don't want to say no. Maybe we'll get there. If we get to Micronesia, be prepared for me to say fuck a lot. <laughs> so I'm just warning you now. Cause... Yeah, we don't like that season. We're, we're very rare in the Survivor community. Then. Yeah. Paul, do you like Micronesia? See, I do, and that's why I like just kind of shut up here and just don't say anything. So I'll let Jay take it. <laughs> oh God, no! This this is my least favorite. And someone's like, "Are you just trolling everything?" No, I'm not. It's a terrible season. It's it's the terrible premise. It has literally broken Survivor today. It is the one that completely breaks Survivor. And everyone's like, "But all the epic blindsides in the second half of the season." It's like it's all soulless. It's literally just you know a bunch of people beating up on some other people. You know, it's it's kind of like watching major, major league baseball players hit a home run while hitting off a tee. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, I, well maybe not that because you know hitting off a tee is hard because there's no forward, forward momentum. Maybe, but it's like a home run derby. It's like a lot of people like the home run derby, and the home run derby attracts a crowd. I'm never really like angry at somebody for liking Micronesia because you know it's like you don't like the home run derby. You mean you don't like watching you know baseball players hit you know just crushing home runs from time to time? I get it, but at the same time, that's not baseball. That isn't Survivor. It is literally just you know people being served up grapefruits and then having them hit it out of the park it's just not it, it's not my cup of tea but um johnny fairplay uh, awful run in fans versus favorites to me if you don't have johnny fairplay ranked number one villain and survivor of all time something is wrong with you what johnny fairplay's legacy might be in trouble with is not necessarily fans versus favorites but just time and the more seasons come out, the more you forget past seasons. Johnny Fairplay's villainy was season seven. We're on season 20 now. And so it's been a while. And then he was on fans versus favorites. And he was on fans versus favorites for like two seconds. And he was off. So people really don't remember Johnny Fairplay that much. And since then, we've had Coach. We've had Russell Hance. We've had people who take that villain mantra. And do I think that Russell is as big a villain as Johnny Fairplay? No, but Russell has played three times more recently than Johnny Fairplay. So if people have Russell at the top of their list, I understand why. Yeah, that's, again, I don't, I don't think Fairplay necessarily had a bad showing in fans versus favorites. I mean, he was only there for one episode. He kind of left under some extraneous circumstances, which we'll talk about once we get up there. But th- there was a legit reason for him that, to want to go home. He was in a lot of pain. Um, but... Uh, I think he had a pretty good run. He he had a really strong episode if you watch it. Just episode one of Micronesia. He's really good in it. I mean, it's that's the old Johnny Fairplay still doing his old tricks. So, yeah, he had really the vote. His, he had the vote. They were gonna vote out poverty. Yeah, that was the thing. I don't think his legacy was really affected at all, and that's that's not necessarily what I thought at the time. But in t- but over time, as you go back and look at Micronesia, and you see how good he was in that, and like you know, he he was still bringing his fastball. He still had his A game going there. So, I don't really think it hurt his legacy at all. And again, his in my opinion, his legacy in Pearl Islands was so strong, it really doesn't matter. Like, you can't ruin that. He could go out and get arrested, and you won't hear from him for 50 years, and I still think his legacy in Pearl Islands is set. But I don't think he was that bad in Micronesia at all. I think he was about the best first boot of all time from an entertainment perspective. Yeah, it wasn't like he came back and was soft or anything. And I think I agree with Jay that it's just time is the only thing that's that, that hurts his legacy at all. And the fact that 
the timing of everything that he, you know, didn't really make All-Stars because the season hadn't aired yet and that kind of stuff. And that, you know, the, the, the only thing that Micronesia hurts him with is that then he is ineligible to be on Heroes vs. Villains, which is a whole other topic and stuff. But, yeah, I agree with you guys. I don't think it... I don't think his showing in, in fans versus favorites has hurt who Johnny Fairplay is. It's not like we saw that and was like, oh, he really is a nice guy. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to use a quote from Stephen King here, people. I forget if I've used this on the show before, but people tell Stephen King, well, your movies suck. Like, do you get mad that it ruined the book? And Stephen King's like, no, because the book's still sitting there on the shelf. It's the same it's always been. I mean, the book hasn't changed. So that's how I look at Fairplay. Like, Pearl Island is still sitting out there. It's been on DVD for seven years. You can watch it anytime you want. So I don't think anything has changed Pearl Island. He's still the best villain of all time. Word. Mark writes to us and says, why is Jay sometimes referred to as the bearded hat guy? Well, Mark. Or Paul. I probably wrote this question because uh, no one (laughs) writes to you. Exactly. Well, Mark, (laughs) Paul, whomever you are, um, I, I wear hats every day and I have a beard. So... Uh, I'm the bearded hat guy. I believe that came out actually credit where credit is due. George Hans uh, on POS, I believe, started that. If I have it wrong, uh, someone will correct me, I'm sure. But I believe it was George. George is a funny guy in there. Uh, he does improv comedy down somewhere in Florida. So, you know, give him, a, give him a shout at some point. You know, he'll be the funny guy that's like three feet tall. Love explain you, what Explain what POS is. Not everyone knows that. Previously on Survivor is a Facebook group uh, that was founded a couple of years ago, and uh, it is a place for Survivor fans to go and talk about things. Uh, sometimes Survivors are in there and randomly drop by and, and talk. I mean, through the years, Cindy Hall was in there quite a bit, um, and uh, as of this podcast, Kathy Sleckman uh, is in there just every day posting things and is actually super funny but it's it's a bunch of people in there some people are funny some people are trolls some people are really earnest fans some people are smart some people aren't it is just a place for people to go and hang and talk uh, about survivor and i think it's a a a nice community for that uh, as well would you agree yes it is an act it is the best survivor group i've been a part of just because the intelligence in there and the level of humor in particular is far surpasses anywhere else you're ever going to see that discusses Survivor. So I would recommend it as well. I, I would agree as well. It, it's a good place to go and, and talk about Survivor because, you know, there will be some threads that, you know, might make you mad. And there will be some threads that you'll be like, I want to be a part of this thread. And there will be some that you say no. But, I mean, there's something for everyone in there. Just get, you know, join and get involved. Booyah. bang That's right. Here we go. Okay, this is from Q Pow. Thank you for writing, Q. And Q Pow writes, in the earlier shows, you guys discussed the cultural relevance of Survivor. I was just wondering what was the general audience's perspective of the show after seven seasons. It's good. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Now, I don't know if, if you're talking the general uh, like American populace, just what the worldview was of Survivor at the time or what the Survivor audience was. was. I will say the Survivor audience was about as hardcore in season seven as it was in season, season one. People were... There was some fatigue that was already setting in. People were already wondering why were there, why have there already been seven seasons in three and a half years? Like this is ridiculous. So there was some of that, and we were kind of losing some viewers. But it was pretty hardcore. The from one through seven, that was about as homogenous. That's a good word. Where everyone was kind of on the same page. Everyone kind of agreed with the same Survivor opinions. You kind of knew the players, the characters, the history of the show. Everyone was kind of on the same page. So it was still pretty strong through seven seasons. Now, in terms of how was Survivor standing in America? That's a lot different. It was a lot of people even, I mean, this is funny. We're now like almost nearing up season 30 and 
it's it's kind of hard to fathom this, but in season seven, you'd ask the general man on the street, hey, do you watch Survivor? And they would say, oh, is that still on? So even back then, it was kind of losing some ground in America. But what happened is All-Stars brought it back because All-Stars had the big premiere after the Super Bowl, which hadn't happened since Australia. So All-Stars was a big rebirth of kind of the popularity among Survivor, among fans that maybe had kind of lost track of it. So Survivor is already starting to lose a little bit of its luster outside of the diehard fan base. And that's it's just, I mean, it was inevitable. You can't. Survivor was, was it was so hot and so this fan base was so strong for those early years, it just couldn't have kept that up. It was going to burn out like a like one of these supernovas or stars eventually. But yeah, season eight kind of gave it a little renaissance because of All-Stars, but it just really never re- really recovered after that. And All-Stars was just a disaster. Take note. Uh, I believe it's even on the Wikipedia page. I know, I know, Wikipedia, citation needed. But if you look at the, the, the seasons on there, they do have the average viewers per season on there. And you can see... Up through All Stars, the average viewership still in the 20 million people range. Right now, Survivor's yeah. pulling in just around 10. So it's still a force on TV back back around All Stars. I will say as well, Paul will appreciate this story. Uh, when Survivor All Stars was coming out, I was doing my student teaching um, then, and uh, at the school I was at, they had a Survivor pool where literally, you know, you entered in money and then, you know, you were randomly assigned a Survivor and then, you know, you had to pay money. And if they lasted week per week and then the person who drew the winner got all the money. So, I mean, school people were doing that back then. I mean, you know, people were, you know, it was still something that people did talk about from time to time on the water cooler. Was it the phenomenon of the first few seasons? No, but it was still something that people actively talked about. And I always kind of, kind of the the one way I kind of measure about you know Survivor's relevance was how how much Survivor was still being featured on uh, the early show, um, which I mean, grant I mean, granted it was it's you know still part of CBS, so they're going to play it up more and stuff, and then you know it, they still were featuring contestants on the early show until season 14 they had them starting at the jury and then after that they didn't really had them on again and they just did the winner segment and stuff but even for survivor all-stars they I mean they they had a lot of media coverage for it on cbs and uh, before every episode aired of all-stars they would bring back they would have like two contestants who weren't all-stars but were previous contestants they brought back brian and vesepia and they had Teresa on there and they had um, Nalia, they had Mad Dog, and so I mean, it was still like Mario said, everyone was still kind of on the same page. They could still bring back Mad Dog in 2003, and people would remember who Mad Dog was. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the big question here is, Paul, were you still rollerblading home from school to watch Survivor? <laughs> yes, I was still on my rollerblades. <laughs> rollerblading. I was, I, was, I, was in, I was in middle school now, though, so maybe I wasn't. That wasn't cool anymore. He spent it's three solid of, years no, but on rollerblades. Every, every, uh, this is the time that I had a Survivor t-shirt that said, I got it from CBS.com, that said, don't vote me out. And <laughs> it was Pearl Island's All-Stars, somewhere kind of in this thing. Every Thursday, I would wear it to school to support the show to make sure people watched it. So it helped remind people to watch it. So I'm partially responsible for the season, for the show going on for so many years. In Montana, of In course. Montana, yes, which clearly brings yeah. in tons of viewers for the show. <laughs> yeah, it's the number two market right behind Cincinnati. And by the way, thank you for asking. I drew Jerry in that pool as a student teacher. <laughs> yes. And uh, 
uh, that was like when I got the name Jerry, I was like, shit, because I was like, no way is Jerry winning this game. But then my silver lining was maybe Jerry will be such a huge bitch that she'll go out one of the first people. It was just my optimistic thing. So then I can just throw in like it was I think it was two bucks a week or something like that. And it was like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, get out of here only spending like four to six dollars or something like that. But no, Jerry is likable. And Jerry goes, you know, a good chunk into the season and then, you know, gets out. And I was like, thanks a lot, Jerry. That's I'm a student teacher. I have no freaking money. Well, way to go. (laughs) All right. Ah, this is me. Uh, David Martinez writes, would any of you guys play Survivor? And if so, how would you? I'm a big fan of Jay, by the way. Oh, he didn't Jay. add that. Ah. He did not add that. You just made that up. Uh, how sad. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, Dave. Thank you, David, uh, very much uh, for your support. Would I, I wouldn't play Survivor. No way. No way would you get me out there. I'm done with the question. Move on. I've I've applied a number of times to Survivor, um, and because right when actually I was I was uh, turned eighteen was between eighteen and nineteen when they lowered the age limit. And I was like, this is a sign from the Survivor gods that I need to be on Survivor. Um, never never got a call, never got anything, and um, actually glad that I never really did anything come of it because I just think about how little I you know even less than I know now about the world and stuff as an eighteen year old. Um, don't think things would have worked out really well for me. So I still would, I mean, I still would do Survivor uh, in a heartbeat. Um, right now I'm kind of at a stage in my life where it just really isn't possible for me. And I think that maybe it's a sign that I'm actually more in a place in my life where I actually could, you know, be in Survivor when, you know, several years ago that was all I could think about is how that's the only thing I need to do and, you know, nothing else is important. So now the fact that I have other things in my life that I would put above Survivor, it's kind of a sign to me that maybe I would be good for Survivor that that, that I have an actual life outside of the show. I actually really wanted to be on the first couple seasons, especially starting around season three, three, four, five, six. That was really where I really wanted to be on the show. But unfortunately, my my problem was I couldn't. I was kind of in the wrong demographic. And this is that I was married and I had a little kid and I was in my 20s. Like I was 25 when my daughter was born. So and this is a demographic you you never really saw in Survivor, which is young males that are married with kids. In fact, I I think the first one was Shannon Elkins or something like that. And that's that's way down the line. So. Like, I remember being in my, like, 26, 27, wanting to apply, and I'm like, there's no way they'll cast me because they want their 20-year-olds to hook up with the other 20-year-olds. So so I couldn't apply until, you know, once I got over 30, then I started applying, and I actually only applied to one season formally. That was Guatemala. And at a certain point, I realized, you know, I don't really want to apply. As the years went went by, I'm like, it's a nice pipe dream to think that I'd go on there and I'd win, but I don't think I would, and it's, it's... just the logistics of it all, like so much of it is based on chance and luck. There's no guarantee you'll do well. And like the thing with me in particular, I had a really strong reputation kind of among the survivor world that people would read my stuff. Like I'd had survivors writing to me for stuff like how they should play all stars. So like I had, I had a pretty big presence in the survivor community. And the only thing that could possibly happen is if I ended up on the show is that I would do poorly and everyone would laugh at me. So I was like, for me, that's, it's, it would be a horrible mistake to even think about applying. So I just stopped and I never went through with it. But I do not think I'd do well on Survivor. And the main thing for me is just I have no attention span. I have the attention span of a five-year-old where shiny object, I, I turn, I go over here, I look this way, I look this way. I'm, just, I'm horrible at work just for the same reason. I just I can't multitask or anything. So Survivor requires so much patience and setting up of, of relationships and having backup plans in case one relationship doesn't work. Yeah, having a working relationship with everybody. It's just, it's not built for someone with my attention span. It just wouldn't work. I just know that realistically. So I think I would, I would be gone very early just because I, I couldn't handle it. To quickly clarify, I am an indoor cat by nature. 
Um, <laughs> yes. I do, I do outdoorsy things from time to time. I just went to Mexico uh, uh, a couple months ago. And uh, for those of you who have gone to uh, the Yucatan and gone to uh, the famous archaeological site Chichen Itza will know uh, it's a beautiful place, just you know, wonderful culture and, and a wonderful historical site. It is literally 99 degrees with 99% humidity there. I mean, it is literally oppressive when you go outside, the weather there. And uh, there's not a lot of shade. And I mean, I prepped myself. I was like, I am going to die when I go out there, but I am going to try to toughen it up. And I was thinking about Survivor and, you know, Guatemala in particular and just, you know, people trying to deal with the heat. I actually did really, really well. I made it through the day and really toughed it out. And I was very proud of myself for not succumbing to the elements like some of my family members did. Uh, But at the same time, I was like, well, that was one day and I toughed it out. But, (laughs) you know, that's one day. And then you have to do another day and another day. The only reality show, I love Survivor. It's my favorite reality show ever, um, and it's the only one I'll stake a claim to on that. But I've never really entertained uh, a lot of uh, possibilities of ever going on that show because I just know I do poorly uh, in the elements, and I'm sure that you know my paranoia would, would, would work against me rather than for me. But uh, the only reality show that I've ever really wanted to be on actively was The Mole. <laughs> Gee, you get to stay in five-star hotels and get a fancy meal every night. No, stop, Go don't. figure. Yeah, (laughs) getting some time indoors and yet playing like a super cerebral game like yes yes please yeah i was always thinking that too oh the mole that would yeah you're really suffering you get these nice fancy meals every night you stay in a great great resort oh that's tristan i don't know who the mole is oh yeah no just kidding i love the mole okay shut the fuck up paul son of a bitch we have a question here from andrew archibald he writes in and says are there rules as to what the survivors can and cannot eat out there? I've heard a few contestants from Australian Outback interviewed on Survivor Oz say they saw kangaroos pretty much every day when the Survivor Oz host mentions that kangaroos are a pest in Australia. They killed a freaking pig. Couldn't Mike Scoopin have stabbed a kangaroo also? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, I do know, um, I haven't heard like specific stuff about Australia, but I remember when Frank was voted off and was on the early show the next day, a viewer wrote in and said, how can they be starving out there? Just kill a snake or an antelope or something. And then he said, well, actually, we were on this, you know, reserve and we weren't allowed to actually hunt. And so with each season of Survivor comes a different set of rules. Like, I remember hearing that even in, in Thailand, I think it was one of the strictest about what you could do out there that they couldn't even knock down coconuts unless they were already lying on the ground because they were on a nature preserve. So with every location comes a different set of rules as far as what they can do as far as, you know, killing animals or fishing or whatever the the set is. It really has to depend on wherever they are. Just just to add to that in particular for Australia, something this reminds me of is I, I used to be a big fan of the crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, and I remember this in particular that you know Irwin, big fan of animals. He loved animals, conservation. That he was the biggest proponent of animals in Australia, but he fucking hated pigs. Like feral pigs are like the biggest pest that are completely destroying Australia, like in the outback and stuff, because they they were introduced there and they have no no one, no predators, nothing eats them, so they just go and destroy the landscape. So, but I always remember Steve Irwin saying, "Oh, I love animals. Oh, bloody hell, I love I love all these animals," and then. But fuck pigs! So it's just funny when I think of Australia that they're not allowed to kill anything but pigs that I always think of Steve Irwin because he would have said, yeah, I'd agree with that. I love animals, but kill those stupid pigs. Yeah, the, the two things is Paul is exactly right. Each season has limitations on what they can and can't do, and it's probably a reason why they reuse locations uh, in more modern seasons. A, because it 
saves money, which, you know, is all there. But B, I think that, you know, once they find a place that, you know, they, it, again, it, it's fun to kind of do a change up. You know, they, at the beginning of Seasons of Survivor, they were going to all these different climbs and, you know, showing these different locations that they could go to. But they kind of realized if you get them on a beach in a place where they can do some fishing, that's probably the best. So that's yeah. kind of, you know, where they sort of stick to it. So where they, you know, they can give them rice and beans as the, you know, main supplement. But then they can, you know, if they can get their druthers and go fishing, they could actually eat fairly decently with some decent protein. So that's actually kind of the formula for Survivor in and of itself. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is kangaroos are freaking vicious creatures. <laughs> like, why didn't Scoop stab a kangaroo? If Scoop got anywhere near a kangaroo, he's dead. He's literally dead. Those things, those things kick super hard, and they could, you know, break a human's spine with their kick, and they've got claws. Wouldn't you pay to see, like, Scoopin holding the boxing gloves, fighting a kangaroo to the death? I know. It's such a funny vi- <laughs> visual, like, the, the boxing a kangaroo thing, but it's like kangaroos will literally kill a human being, <laughs> yeah. like, and not even think twice. Like, why didn't Scoopin ca- get near a kangaroo? Because he would be dead. He's kicked. He's kicked pretty bad, Terry. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Paul. No, he just he just went. I oh, just read. All right. all right, sorry, sorry, bitch. <laughs> all right, here we go. This is from Stan Hooper. Stan Hooper, a uh, Saturday Night Live fan. Thank you. Uh, Stan Hooper <laughs> writes in. How did the three of you meet? What made you decide to put together a podcast? And this is something I discussed a while back. In that, over the years, I've picked up a lot of readers and just Survivor fans I've interacted with, and I always file away who I think are the sharpest ones, who have something to say, who would be fun to work with, and. Jay and Paul are just on my list for years, and also Beatles, who, if you are a longtime listener of the historians, you remember he was in our first podcast. So these were the three guys. These were the three guys. I mean, if you were to ask me who the sharper fans in the Survivor community are, these are the three that I would have put. I mean, there's other ones too, but these are right at the top of the list with other guys I know. So that's how I knew them. They were just people I'd kind of known from years through other stuff, and I just had filed away that I want to uh, do a project with them someday. So when the podcast came along, this is. This Historians podcast is an idea I had about four or five years ago where someone someone should really be chronicling the older seasons because no one was doing that. So that's how it came about. It's something, an idea I had in the back of my head. I wanted to pick my all-star team, and I knew exactly who would be fun to listen and to, uh, to listen to on a podcast. So that's kind of how it started. And I was the only one who knew what the hell a podcast was, so that's how I got <laughs> roped into it. Yeah, we needed Paul because he knows how to record things. Don't you feel special, Paul? Mm-hmm. Very yeah. complicated, I- yes. I feel I feel special. You feel I feel super special. All right, keep going. Mark Kalzer writes, "How do you deal with rumors generally? It just seems so easy for a castaway to refute a belief or to claim something happened off camera that changes the whole perception of a season." I'm not saying fair play is wrong about Lil, but there's got to be a lot of former players with axes to grind, knowing fans will pounce onto any rumor they feel may have truth to it. So how do you deal with it? Also, are there rumors you openly disregard or just avoid on the podcast since you don't believe they have any basis? That's a great question. The answer is we've been kind of hinting about it. You can take any interview. You've got to take it with a grain of salt. Usually you can sort of, if you listen to multiple interviews and kind of hear the same story over and over again, doesn't necessarily mean that that story is true because maybe they were fed a story or something like that. But usually you can kind of use some common sense and you can listen to the stories and you can see if there's more than one source and, you know, does it sound super fishy in your head? I mean, the, the thing is, is that I, these people are characters, they're people, right? But 
more than their people, they're characters on a television screen. And when you're a character on a television screen, you're going to have fans. And, you know, when fans come out, then, you know, they say something. The fans of that person will generally just believe wholeheartedly everything they say. So then a bunch of mistruth or a bunch of this comes one way. You just kind of have to wade through it as best you can is, is sort of how I, I say it. Um, you, you, just, you just need to be careful. You just need to kind of read through the lines and just, you know, use your better judgment, I think. I will say for me, the thing that I do, because hear, you hear these a lot. You hear rumors, you hear interviews. A lot of interviews done 10 years after the fact. This, these happen a lot now, a lot more than they used to. For me, I only tend to repeat rumors if it, if it backs up something I heard at the time. Like the thing with Fairplay and Lil, I have heard for years how nasty his jury question was to her. People talked about it for years. There was just never details on specifically what it was. And, and I'm, not, I'm not just talking that I heard about it like from fans on a message board. I know a lot of kind of insiders on the show. I know... Guys like, uh, I'm just going to name drop, I know Mertz Jaffer, who's, you know, super fan number one, goes to every event. I know Big Mike Albright, who goes to every event. I know these guys that know all the players, that know all the dirt. So it's just, when I hear Fairplay telling me this stuff, it backs up completely these stories I've heard from all kind of the insiders that I heard at the time, when it was fresh and everyone was kind of buzzing about it. So that's kind of my thing. I will only repeat rumors or give them credence if it's something that kind of backs up what I've already heard and I just don't know the details to yet. Stuff like that. It depends on where the source is coming from, too. Like, if it's just a first time, someone says something for the first time 10 years later in an interview, you never had seen this before, I wouldn't give that much credence at all just because, well, if this was that important, it would have come out sometime before. But there is stuff that has come out before, and just a lot of people don't know about it yet. And those are the ones that I tend to be place more importance on. Right, yeah. I, I normally just kind of, and sometimes it's hard with the, with the earlier seasons because I wasn't as active around them. But usually if, if it's something that has some kind of link back to when the show was airing, it's a little more reliable than, than stuff that comes out, these revelations that come out, you know, 10 years down the road. So, you, Again, you, you, know, you have to use your judgment. To use two from Pearl Islands, uh, Rhino, you know, it's, it's the whole, like, did Austin, did they badger the Morgans until Austin said he quit, right? Like, Rhino has gone on record and said, yeah, that's what happened, right? But then Dara and, uh, and T have come out and said, no, that's totally not true and stuff like that. But the thing is, is that they're all friends. Like Rhino may have said something just because, you know, that's how he remembers it. Maybe he's remembering wrong or maybe it was something. And, you know, Dara said it's not true. But they're friends with Austin. Maybe they're just trying to, you know, uh, say something. You never know. You don't know. Like that's a thing where literally we're guessing. You just kind of have to parse it and figure out what you want. But there's the other uh, Pearl Islands thing that we talked about in our podcast where after – uh, Rupert goes over to the Morgan tribe and then uh, they do their reward challenge and then Rupert immediately goes back to Drake. Jeff Probst then asked them if anyone wanted a mutiny. It wasn't shown on television. Do we know that actually happened? Well, here's the thing. Fairplay has come out and said that that's what happened. And uh, he made it sound like it was pretty good for, for Drake and that Andrew Savage just basically said anyone that comes over to this side is being voted out and there's the death knell for the Morgans and the death knell for everything good for Andrew Savage, right? So you're like, well, fair play may have an axe to grind for something like that. Rhino, someone asked me that question on Twitter and I responded to it and Rhino actually re- jumped in on that Twitter thread and said, that's truth. And yeah. it's like, Rhino and Andrew Savage are friends. We're friends. Like, why would he jump in on that? Maybe they're not friends now and out of falling out, and I don't know that. But, I mean, literally, why would you make yourself look bad at that point? So, you know, when, when cross things go, you have to look, kind of look at people's agendas and make your best judgment, I think. Yeah, it just, there's a phrase, does it pass the smell test? Like, mm-hmm. does this seem fishy or not? That, Andrew Savage saying that totally makes sense. I can totally picture him saying that. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of those, do these rumors pass the smell test? And most of them don't, especially when you hear them now. There's so many 
games of telephone being played with Survivor. I heard this, I heard this, I heard, oh, Greg only voted for Richard because Richard came closest. Well, that's not true, and, like, you would have known this back in the early days. So it's just, it does stuff past the smell test. I think, I think I, I had, well, I had something else to say on this, and now I've forgotten it. Um, no, we're good. Move on. All right, Scott McCullough writes in here, and he says, From the seasons you have covered so far, being up to and including Pearl Islands, who are maybe the two or three survivors who have distanced themselves the most from the survivor community, lawsuits aside, of course. Also putting Rob Sestinino aside, who from those seasons has been most part of the survivor community? I'll talk about the most obvious choice because I know a lot about her because she was uh, up until very, I mean, in the past few years, I always said she was my favorite survivor, Elizabeth Filarski, now Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Um, after she got hired on as, you know, on The View, the survivor community really had a backlash to her. And it was kind of funny how her whole kind of legacy came to be because, you know, it wasn't until a couple years down the road that she really kind of became this outspoken conservative voice for The View that kind of, you know, enraged so many people who watched her. Um, but she really would not bring up Survivor at all. And it really was kind of the hook that got her on the show. I remember when they announced her as co-host, they even, like, they had this, like, fake tribal council where the, the ladies, like, held up these votes and they revealed her as the winner and she, you know, turned around in the chair and stuff and they had all this smoke and fire and stuff. But, you know, she really would never ever bring up Survivor. And I remember there was such, like, so much, like, disdain for her that, you know, how she wouldn't even you know, wouldn't even talk about it. And I remember I'd watch stuff and, and Rosie O'Donnell, when she was on The View with her, you know, obviously Rosie's a big Survivor fan, so she would kind of try to bring up Survivor stuff or anytime anyone, like, kind of be like, oh, like, like when you were on Survivor, she would shut it down immediately and act like she didn't hear it. Um, so so she was one that, you know, was a really big name early on that really kind of turned her back to Survivor, which it makes sense that she was able now to make a name completely for herself aside from Survivor because, you know, most people who know Elizabeth Hasbeck now, probably a very small fraction actually you know, know her or remember her from Survivor. I will say that the one thing that I really, really appreciate that she did is before Survivor Heroes vs. Villains aired, they, they aired a special on TV called Surviving Survivor. It was a little retrospective over the first, you know, the you know the past 19 seasons. And uh, they did a little segment on Elizabeth Hasselbeck and she agreed to do an interview and she talked about um, how important Survivor was for her and the fact that it helped her, you know, diagnose herself with, with celiac disease. And now she's a big advocate for gluten-free diet and stuff like that. So, um, that that's probably the more obvious choice about who distanced themselves the most from the survivor community. I would say the big white whale, as far as uh, uh, distancing themselves from the survivor community, has to be Colleen, isn't yeah, well, it? She, yep. she, she was on TV at all, so she had the leg up there too. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I was just going to say that almost everybody distanced themselves from the show. If you look back to the early seasons, I mean, this is a big fundamental difference in how Survivor was then and how it is now, in that. There was no such thing as a professional reality star back then. You went yeah. on Survivor and that was it. You just went home. So it's not that they distanced themselves from the show so much as they just went back to their lives. Like Gretchen went back to being a preschool or kindergarten. I always forget which one she was, a teacher. Like uh, Frank went back to working on telephone lines. Like Colleen just wanted to go back and be anonymous again. Like Dr. Shaw. You don't see a lot of these people. They kind of just faded away and did normal stuff. So it's not so much that they distanced themselves and that they just did what all Survivor alumni did back then and they moved aside and let the new cast come in. So Well, and there, was, there, was, really... there wasn't the outlet of, of social media, so there was no way to keep up with Colleen, you know, once she entered back in the real world. And I think Mario's right that they either they either did that, they faded back in real life, or 
if they legitimately were trying to seek out a career in Hollywood, um, you know, which there were there were a few in those early seasons. Like the you know the, you were more like a Elizabeth. You didn't want anything to do with the show. You didn't want to be known as a Survivor star. You wanted to make your own path. Yeah, I would see. I would say it's it's more the rule other than the exception that players don't didn't keep in touch with the Survivor community back then. Like it's hard to think of anybody in seasons one through seven who's really a super visible part of the community other than Rob Sester. You know, and again, Rob wasn't a visible member of the community consistently. He disappeared for a long time. And like Rob has a podcast is still relatively new. He was gone for a long time. He did another podcast. He tried his hand at stand up. Like he wasn't necessarily doing this all along. So it was really kind of the exception if someone from back in the early days is still a part of the visible part of the fan community. I, in fact, I'm not sure I could name anybody other than Rob and maybe Rupert. But again, that's that's when Rupert becomes a professional reality star. It's a whole different thing at that point. The the name I will add in here though, as far as uh, as far as being part of the Survivor community, as far as someone being accessible and kind of consistently, you know, doing interviews, you know, never really you know shutting you know the the fan community and stuff was was Richard Hatch, which is kind of cool for the series mm-hmm. that you still hear from Richard Hatch at least once a year. He comes on Rob's podcast. He's he's done other podcasts and stuff. So I mean, uh, I I think that's that it's good for the show that we have the first winner who still is without being overly annoying, you know, still accessible to the fan community. Because, I mean, there are some annoying ones out there that you, uh, pops up like, oh, another podcast with so-and-so, great. Yeah, you great. know, with with Rob has a podcast, and, you know, because Rob is, is so good and because he can get all those uh, people on his podcast, you do hear from people uh, more often than not. Social media has made certain people uh, famous or, or notable or following. Uh, I think you're totally right, the fact that Richard Hatch has made himself super available for things like that. Um, I would also chime in, oh gosh, who was I thinking of? Well, you know, you have to think of like people who, I guess really the outlet other than like social media and stuff of like that is some of those just fan events, you know, like a uh, hearts reality, reality rally and stuff like that. Uh, Sandra goes to a lot of those events, you know, a lot, you know, there, there are people that, that you will just see at those events over and over again. You could think what you want on it, but I mean, if you go to those places, you'll probably see some people consistently. And admittedly, not most of our listeners don't go to those events. So I'm, if you if you don't go to those, don't feel bad. That those are kind of a, an exclusive kind of thing to go to. And most people don't do those all the time. No, and that and that's and that's fine. I mean, most most survivors, you know, you can try to get at them via social media. They they may pay attention to you. They may not. Uh, you know, some of them may have pages where you know you can buy some swag from them that they sign for money or not or something like that. You just you know it just depends. And I always have to point out that people, you know. Or especially newer fans are trying to track down these survivors and talk to them on social media. You, you have to keep in mind the uh, the timeline of Survivor. This show has been on a long time. Like people still think of Colleen Haskell as like this little, you know, little teenage or barely out of her teenage girl. She's like thirty seven now. Yeah. Someone, yeah. Someone pointed out the other day that Tanya Vance from Thailand. She's thirty nine. Like these aren't little kids. Like this show's been on a long time. So don't expect them to be exactly as you saw them on TV because some of these shows were a decade and a half ago almost. I'll just say as well, Tanya Vance is 39. Yeah. Does it I saw it. Yeah. A picture of her was just surfaced at that one event that was just a few weeks ago. She looks the same as she was oh, yeah. in Thailand. Yeah, she always looks about 24. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have a... We'll talk more about Tanya but later. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, Kimmy, I just looked up the other day. Kimmy Kappenberg is now forty-one, so she's <gasps> older now. She's older now than Tina was when she won Australia. <laughs> so again, that's the thing. Like this, life goes on for these people. They move on. They go back to their lives, and they're not the same little frozen in time people that were on a TV show at one point. 
All right. Uh, Joshua M. writes, I remember when Austin first suggested that he quit the show, I thought, can he do that? I remember the early joke being that contestants would ask to be voted out, but the concept of quitting never occurred to me. Did the concept of quitting as, is, as, as it is known today exist in the fan community during the first five seasons of Survivor? No. Ab- absolutely not. Yeah, no. it's and again, it's not Austin that's the first quitter. The first one where it really came up was Shauna, Shauna. the season before. Yeah. yeah. But no, it was not even a question that someone would quit. I mean, people were so excited to be on this show and worked so hard to get there and just had dedicated their lives so much to Survivor that it just did not seem like anybody, it wouldn't even cross your mind to quit. And again... Even if it did cross their mind, I don't know if it would have been shown on TV. It's just because of the way the show was back then. All right, let's let's see. We got about eighty questions left. Let's kind of move through them. Try to give shorter answers to them. Let's uh, start with uh, we got question twenty-two, Jay. Oh, don't give a number, you son of a bitch. <laughs> David M writes: The thing I love, one thing I love about Pearl Islands is how Krista screws with the editors. If you look at her interviews, she always has some kind of different, crazy new hairdo. Even more once they get the sewing machines and the ribbons and stuff, which makes all the Franken edits really hard for them. It may explain why she has a stretch without a confessional in the middle of the season. Basically, it becomes very visible how they put comments and scenes out of order because of her hair. The only other time I ever noticed them doing something similar was in the Samoa finale or near the end when they show a Russell confessional and he's fat and hair while in the game he's way smaller and hairy uh well uh, thank you david for writing the question <laughs> first of all i'm very excited to answer it that's funny i chris does change her hair that's just it's, it's a funny thing to notice that you know someone's hairstyle changing from all the time kind of makes it harder for them to do quotes in and out but i don't know if chris's hairstyle is the reason why krista doesn't get a stretch without confessionals that's all i'll say <laughs> Sean Mullen writes and says, I once heard that Mario and Jay were going to do a commentary for the earlier seasons. Is that still happening? Because I would get that immediately. Oh, shit. I love that Paul gets to read the question that specifically excludes him. Yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot, Sean. <laughs> F you. Well, that's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a very European question, Paul. <laughs> I don't, yes, really, Jay I don't and I... really do commentaries in the States. But... <laughs> Jay and I have had a plan in the back of our head for about, I mean, this is not new. This is five years four or five years yeah where we want to do a mystery science theater where we provide a commentary that you play along with any season we were going to start with borneo and you just play the mp mp3 as you're watching the season and we'll insert our wrist and it'll be just like you're watching riff tracks or mystery science theater and it's something we've been dying to do we just haven't done the logistics have figured out how it's going to work it's going to how we're going to record it how we're going to release it it's something it's absolutely on our radar and i think it'll be fucking hilarious just because jay kills me and i think i make jay laugh so i think we'll feed off each other just because we were we think the same way, and uh, not to exclude Paul. But, uh, yeah, this is something that Jay and I have had in, in our mind, I mean, years before I ever came up with historians, that someday it's going to happen. I just don't know when. Uh, what Mario means to say is, fuck you, Paul! Yeah. We're going to do yeah. something! <laughs> no, this, yes. th- no it's, Mystery Science Theater 3000 is one of my favorite shows of all time, and I know it's one of Mario's favorite shows of all time. And uh, just a running joke commentary. And, and I mean... Uh, not only Mystery Science Theory 3000, but, um, oh, God, Takeshi's, um, uh, MXC, Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. Yes. Like, love that show to death. I mean, it's just, it's literally just a joke a minute. You just kind of riff what's going on. And it's, it wouldn't be, if we do this, people, it wouldn't be a commentary. It wouldn't be like historians commenting on the episode as the episode's happening. There is going to be no sort of context for, like, survivor knowledge or, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's literally just going to be jokes the whole time. So it, that sounds amazing. Let's do this shit. 
It is my. It will be my loving tribute to Mystery Science Theater, which is my all-time favorite TV show. That that show has given me so much over the years that it has literally made me the writer and the comedian that I am. It's all because of that show. So I want to do something as a tr- homage to it. There will be a roll fizzle beef mentioned somewhere in there as well. <laughs> yes, or a Richard Baba Ganoush. <laughs> all right, uh, uh, I'm up. Uh, Matthew. Garacio says, you've talked a lot about how close Rob C. and Johnny Fairplay came to winning. How do you think the game would have evolved had either or both of them had won the game? Actually, uh, uh, I, when I read this question, I thought about it a little bit. And I think that what we had with Rob and, and Johnny Fairplay was kind of interesting that we had these two characters back to back. And even though, even though, you know, Rob wasn't a huge Survivor fan, it was more Big Brother and that, you know, Johnny Fairplay was recruited, but then had to watch all these shows. It kind of was this little era, this kind of brief era where we had these really, really smart players who really knew the game well. And we're going to kind of, you know, try out their stuff. And they really kind of revolutionized the game. And after that, after they both lost, they both came in third. We really did not see that for a long time. I mean, I think in Vanuatu, they tried to give us someone like Brooke, who, who was a super fan, but maybe didn't fit that mold of a nerdy kind of, you know, um, whatever you want to say about Rob Sesternino and Johnny Fairplay. But, you know, it really isn't until much modern day Survivor that now we have these types of, of um, you know, these really smart, nerdy, whatever kind of kind of players who, who are really good at the game. But now it's kind of in right now with Survivor to be a super fan, to really know the game, to be really strategic and stuff. But I feel like if one of them would have won the game, we would have seen maybe that that era come a little bit sooner. We would have cycled through more of those types of characters on the show. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those what-if questions. It's hard to say what would have happened. I mean, the one thing that really came out of Rob and, and Fairplay finishing in third is that you had this, well, the best player on Survivor always finishes third mentality, which is what a lot of people believed and still kind of do believe that, oh, there's a flaw in the game that the best players can't win. I'm like, no, there's a flaw in the game. I mean, I don't consider it a flaw in the game. I think third place is an excellent finishing position. You did great. That's I consider the position of honor. You were so good that they couldn't take you to the final two. So I don't necessarily see that as a flaw in the game, just as... That's just kind of a fact of the life of Survivor. If you're so good and scary that they don't want to take you to the finale, then, I mean, that's a kind of a badge of honor. It's not really a position of shame. You did well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know with what if. I think that if, if Fairplay wins the game, uh, we remember Fairplay differently. And yeah. I don't know how much that impacts the evolution of the game, per se, because I feel like the major evolutionary step is Sesternino's gameplay that that fair play then not only copied but then did to an nth degree but you know it's 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 that sort of you know uh bottom feeding alliance hopping you know not just playing the game so you know abc at that point that's the important thing and you know if Ces- if Cesar, you know wins uh because of that i think people are satisfied with that win and uh you know maybe maybe then people try to emulate Cesarino more but you never know you never know with the edit and just people's thing cuz there's a lot of people that played the game of Survivor and said, I loved Rob C. and I tried to play like Rob C. And, uh, you know, you would say to them, boy, couldn't tell from what we saw on TV. So, you know, if Cesarino wins, does more people try to emulate him? I don't know if there can be more people trying to <laughs> emulate him. So, I don't know. Uh, uh, let's move on. Um, Is it me? It's you. Oh. Oh, my, oh, my God, Gretchen, it's you. Oh, my God, it's me. Four one 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 one. Andrew Archibald writes, I've gathered that you guys aren't fans of All-Stars. Is that because of the choices made and what players were brought back? Also, is your dislike confined to this season alone or every season in which there are returning players? We're all going to have different answers. I guess I'll go first. 
Um, yes, I didn't like some of the choices of players brought back. But then again, I am not someone that creates television that millions of people watch. I'm sure I have choices uh, for who I who I bring back, and I had a formula for it. I don't know if it'd make a great season of viewing Survivor, so I don't know. But uh, is my dislike confined to this season alone or every season in which there are returning players? Mainly seasons with returning players. That being said, there have been some seasons with returning players that have been pretty good and that I have liked. Survivor Philippines was one of those. It was a very good season uh, with some returning players. However, with the amount of seasons we had with returning players, there's bound to be a season or so that is good with them. I think that for the most part, returning players sucks, and I don't like it. Um, I'll jump in here and uh, and give my input on it. Um, I don't think I, I definitely am not at the hatred level of Mario, but I actually think my opinion of All Stars has has gone down over the years, uh, maybe because of Mario. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of it is it's not it's not only the you know some people that brought back. It's that combined with how it turns out, mm-hmm. um, because. And in a lot of ways, I really I can't blame CBS that much for the way they did it because from their perspective, they're going to put in all these good players. You're going to have a few kind of random, hey, whatever players, those people get picked off early and then we're going to have this epic season. Okay, it turns out quite the opposite. All the epic people go first. We're left with a bunch of duds at the end. So, I mean, it's just kind of the way that, that it shakes out there. But um, And I'm sure we're going to dive into the season at some point and Mario's just going to, you know, <laughs> there's going to be lots of blood. Uh, as he massacres the season, but I mean, I, I really didn't put it too much into perspective until I re I watched the season for the first time with my fiance. She was so excited for the cast of the season. She liked so many players, and she said we watched it, and every episode she was like, "Oh man, they're out, and they're out, and they're out," and she said, "It's pretty sad that the first time I'm actually happy someone gets voted out is when Alicia goes home at the final <laughs> seven. So it just yeah. becomes this just taking out of so many, so many great Survivor players that makes it somewhat depressing to watch. Yeah, I don't have a problem with who was cast. In fact, I've always gone on record and saying I think they did a fantastic job with casting. I mean, there was some logistics they had to work around, like Colleen doesn't want to come back. Elizabeth doesn't want to come back. There's all sorts of stuff like they just couldn't get everybody they wanted. So I think they did an absolutely fantastic job getting Colby, who really didn't want to be there, but they talked him into it. So they did. My dislike of All-Stars has nothing to do with the cast. I think they did an amazing job. What really, okay, this is, I'm having a hard time kind of phrasing this because I want to get this just right. If I phrase this right, it'll just click in everyone's head why I hate All-Stars. And I'm going to use an analogy here. Like Greek mythology Everyone knows Greek mythology. You know Zeus. Zeus is horny. You know, you know, Hephaestus is the gimp. You know, Hera is all jealous. You know, you know these people. You know they're... It's like, this. the way I, I describe the early Survivor days is that it was like mythology. We had a mythology. Everyone, and I've, I've touched on it before, that all Survivor fans were kind of on the same page. You loved Rupert. Rob Sesternino was the best player not to win. Uh, Kathy was amazing. Colleen was the sweetheart. Richard Hatch was the, you know, the greatest, the first winner and the greatest. Heidek was Mr. Ice. I mean, everyone's kind of on the same page. And I've never met a part of a fan base that's like that before where everyone is on the same page. And again, it was like we had a mythology. You had all these characters. Everyone, you talked to anybody, Mad Dog, they knew instantly who that was. And you'd all agree on what, what she was like, what kind of player. All-Stars comes around. And All-Stars is like if you took a Greek myth and you wrote it and said, okay, I'm going to write a Greek mythology, only in this one, all right, Zeus doesn't like women, and Zeus is real shy. And in this one, Hermes, uh, he's not a messenger, he's, he doesn't do all this stuff. Uh, 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 Athena isn't wise in this one. Athena's an idiot, and she's a slut. 
and like you just ruin the mythology. You can't do that. And that's that that is how I look at All Stars, and that that is the season. And again, I use this phrase over and over. But it's the season that killed Survivor. Like it split the fan base apart. The fan base is not on the same page after that because after All Stars. Like, you have half the people saying, well, Rob Sestronino didn't really have a chance because he was so good, they just were going to target him. But then you had all these other fans who were kind of new to the show saying, this guy's not that great. I don't even know why he should have been on All-Stars in the first place. He had no game. And so you had this split of a fan base. And the way I always describe it is that it was it, it ruined our mythology. We had a mythology and everyone was on the same page. And that was the moment in the timeline when Survivor split and there was no agreeing on anything. You had to take a side on every issue. You were either one side or the other, pro-Boston Rob, pro-Lex. And that is what has always galled me about All-Stars and why I, I hate returning player seasons. I will never accept a returning player season as real Survivor. And I hope I phrased that correctly. That's actually a really good analogy. Um, and, I, and I buy that for a dollar. Uh, I usually say with All-Stars, it, it is all contained. I never like it when they put returning players with new players. Uh, not, not because of the, the mythology angle is good, and I don't really have a counter to that. But my main thing is that, you know, it is so important, you know, experience in Survivor, uh, you know, people coming back. I mean, what I think people were excited about in All-Stars is, is kind of that fact that they were all coming back. They've all been out there. They've all gotten on the beach and built in the shelter and, and stuff like that. So, like, that stuff is not really what you're tuning in for. You're just now going to watch these guys that were big personalities kind of butt heads and try to play the game of Survivor. And it, it, it panned out in a really weird way. But then, when you, when you know, especially fans versus favorites, where you've got ten people that have played the game before that know everything that's going on, ten people that are, like, starry-eyed about the game in general and the people on the other tribe, it's just not fair. It's, it's literally a, an uneven playing field. And yeah... Not all Survivor is fair. We have the outcast twist. Some people are naturally made to play this game and others aren't. I get that not all Survivor is fair. Not all of them come in with an equal chance at winning. But it's like, you know, the original Micronesia, we didn't know it at the time, but it's like literally 10 people walked into that game with no shot at winning. And even on, yeah. the, on the favorites tribe, you know, half those favorites aren't winning. So literally there were like four or five people that can win. And the way with All-Stars is... And I mean, Paul was, I, I was mentioning it. I'm, I don't know if someone asked us the question or anything like that. I, and I know that I prepared for it because we're getting into the All-Stars podcast next. But it's literally the question is, who would you guys have put on All-Stars? And we don't need to go over it right now. But as I was going through my list, I basically noticed that like of the final like seven or eight people on, on Survivor All-Stars, none of them made my list except for Rupert, who is like a slam dunk. You bring him back. But, like, Rob, as much as I like Boston Rob and thought he was fun in Marquesas, he doesn't make my list. He doesn't make my, my list back. Neither does Amber. And I get that, you know, some people on my list, like I have Colleen on my list, and I think I may have Elizabeth on my list. And they were called and they turned down Survivor. And I get that Burnett had that thing where he, you know, some people said no, and you have to go get around that. But I still have other workarounds, and maybe we get to Amber. Maybe we don't. But the thing is, is that, no matter how you look at it in Survivor All-Stars, anyone that was worth anything got targeted really, really, really early in that game. And yeah. you just have to deal with it. And I'll even throw in there that there was a meanness in, in All-Stars, in particular coming from Boston Rob, that just galls me to this day why I can't watch that season. That He set out in that show not only to dominate and to win, but like to embarrass some of the other Survivor people who were big names, like Ethan and Colby in particular, that... Rob is trying to make an example out of them to like make them look foolish on TV and show that they weren't all that. And it's and there's a meanness behind that whole thing, just an ass a legacy assassination, which absolutely galls me to no end. And it's, uh, it's it's just hard for me to get into words 
just how much dislike I have for that season and why on such a fundamental level that it even exists. So it's, I, I, I want to save a lot of this for our All-Stars podcast, but this is the main reason, this is my main argument that I'll be going on, on for all, it'd be expounding on that for nine hours when we talk about All-Stars right there. I'm going to talk about how fun it is and also the fact that in all the main, many, many seasons going near season 30 of Survivor we've had, there is nothing as funny as Rupert's Shelter. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. I mean, I get funny 115 dead grandma. I get all the funny 115. But just as a concept, Rupert's Shelter is fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> so good that we'll bring him back as a reward on Israeli Survivor. I know! <laughs> Well, Fred has a question here. He says, what happened to Beatles? Didn't there used to be four of you on the podcast? And yeah, one time Beatles tried to tell us that he kind of liked All-Stars, and I haven't heard from him since. Uh, uh, Fred, Beatles um, Beatles is dead. Paul, pa- Paul killed him. I, I don't know what to tell you. That was all Mario. <laughs> Wait, we're not doing a Paul is dead Beatles joke? Oh, that was too easy right there. All right, we're going to skip that. Uh, let's see, yeah, Beatles... When I put this podcast together, I wanted the sharpest, funniest Survivor minds I knew. Beatles is number one. Beatles is, if you go on Survivor Sucks. We're standing right here. Jesus Christ. Yeah, sorry. You guys are funnier than Beatles. Okay, Beatles is kind of boring. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) But no, but on Survivor Sucks, Beatles is number one. He's the alpha dog. And I'm... I'm kind of one of the alpha dogs on Sucks, and even I will acknowledge that Beatles is alpha dog. Like, I'm under him. That's just the way it is. He's the guy at Sucks, didn't if you want to know. Didn't Beatles write the open letter to Jeff Probst that got responded? He did, and that's why it's so you know, significant that Beatles was the one who wrote that letter. If you have Beatles turning against you, this guy is the ultimate survivor expert. He knows everything about the show. He is the most respected survivor guy out there on any message board. So for him to write a letter to probes telling that basically the show sucks and fuck you probes and it's all your fault. I mean, that that's a, that's a huge hit for probes to take from that kind of fan. But anyway, yeah, Beatles was the guy I wanted to build historians around. And the problem was Beatles is, isn't really a podcast guy. He doesn't like talking. He's not comfortable in the podcast medium. He'd kind of retired from the message board about a year before I kind of approached him. So he did the first podcast as a favor just because he thought it would be fun for the two of us to finally you know, work together because we'd known each other for sucks for all those years. But he was under no obligation to do more than one podcast. I really wasn't aware this was going to become a long-term thing like it did. So he did the one as a favor. I said, hey, do you want to make this a long-term thing? He's like, ah, no thanks. And I'm like, yeah, no, I wouldn't if I were you either. So that, that's what happened. He's, he's a great guy. I'm a big fan of Beatles. We're good friends. But yeah, he, podcasts just weren't his thing. If ever I make a, a tweet on Twitter that gets favorited by Beatles, it's like literally like Christmas. It's so fun that I'm like, oh, Beatles liked what I said. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's elusive. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. Uh, Will Olson asks, like, I'll, I'll, I'll let Jay read this one since it's directed to him. Go for it, Jay. <laughs> Will Olson, you son of a bitch. He writes, as a fellow theater nerd, please rank the songs from the musical Little Shop of Horrors in order from your least favorite to your most favorite, but only the songs from the stage musical, not the movie. Thanks, Jay. You're the best historian. Tell Paul I said hi. Your absolute biggest number one fan, no homo, Will Olson. Paul, <laughs> Will Olson says hi. Thanks, Jay. Tell Will Olson hello back. <laughs> well played. Um, uh, thanks, Will. Um, not so survivor related, so I'll keep it very brief. Um, Little Shop of Horrors is a great musical. There are no bad songs, and I know that's a dumb thing to say, but uh, it's very true with that musical. I, it's one of my favorites. All the songs are a plus. 
Um, so with that being said, you kind of have to then go to the songs that aren't just carrying one emotion or one note. I like songs that kind of advance the plot and show some complexity. Uh, to me, that's The Meek Shall Inherit and Supper Time. Everything else falls a second, but nothing is bad. And uh, hope that helps. Let's move on. Um, Adam Burleson. Uh, I, I guess I'm writing a talking yeah, about a turn. It. Yeah. This is what's the biggest move in the first seven seasons that impacts the way Survivor is played today? The great grandma lie, the sepia breaking fallen comrades, coconuts from Marquesa reviewing all the alliances, that kind of thing. I think we all might have a different answer, but we all might have a really good one. So uh, who wants to start? This is a great question. I don't really know how I'd answer this. Um, My the first one that comes. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to answer it, you rude Gus. You, oh, God. <laughs> yes, no. Uh, the one that comes to mind is just Pascal and Nilia realizing, I don't want to be fifth place and sixth place. I want to be in the top four. So really, yeah. that's really kind of it. That's the first time it really happens in Survivor that impacts the entire way Survivor goes. I mean, you could you could say Richard forming the alliance, but eventually people would have figured out that numbers help. But just the the foresight to think, I don't like fifth place, and I want to be in fourth place. So... Just stuff like that. That that's what I would say, Nalia and Pascal. Yeah, I, I would. I, that that's actually the moment I go to as well because that that shows that if you don't like the place you are, you can flip. And I think maybe a close second to that is is maybe it, kind of a little more obscure, but Rob voting out Christie in Amazon because he showed that we could flip when he flip when he votes out Alex. But then he shows that, you know what, you can flip back again. And I think that is also a huge thing that that is now just ingrained in Survivor, that you're never fully committed to an alliance. And if you know if you really want to win, you can never be fully committed to one plan or one idea because the game is all about flexibility. But if I had to pick one, I think it's that flipping of Get Out, John Carroll, and Marquesas that really kind of sets the whole thing in motion. Well, you guys just made me a liar because I said we'd all have different answers, but my answer would have been voting out John Carroll. <laughs> Um, because, Aww. well, because I think, yeah, because I think that you're right. I think that Rob Sesternino, you know, I think was the most important player in those first seven seasons because he sort of, you know, individualized and sort of popularized for better or for worse, the idea that, you know, you don't have to, you know, sit on a solidified alliance, but I mean, he wasn't the first to do it. I mean, it was Nalia and Pascal that basically shook up that game that said, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be such a pecking order thing. We can rearrange the order. And I mean, Rob showed us all how to do it single-handedly and, you know, not just, you know, based on this one thing that went on. But I think that, you know, John Carroll's vote off, as fun as people like to talk about just the downfall of John Carroll, I think that just the impact of what happened there is more important than anything. And, of course, what that leads back to is how that all started was with Gabriel's vote off, which... Back you to my theory son once of a again. Bitch. That's right. That Gabriel is Jesus. He died so that Survivor might live. I'm, I'm fucking done with this podcast. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> All right. Okay, your answer was your answer was good too, Jay. No homo. Yes. All right. Uh, Chupa Cabras writes to us and says this one is more of a pre-Survivor topic. Basically, it goes that Mark Burnett did make some pitches for Survivor in 1998, but no one was interested. That may well have been the end of this concept of a show, but I think the show got its second chance when in the summer of 99, when ABC released Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah, he's right. Yeah, <laughs> Millionaire was big, and it opened the way. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, did we talk about that in episode one? I forget. But yeah, Who Wants a Millionaire was such a big show. I mean, this was 
it was as big as Survivor, maybe even bigger. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but it was a big deal, and Survivor kind of followed that, if I believe. So yeah, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was the really the forefront or the forerunner. Millionaire was important for two reasons. One, it opened the door for other reality shows, and two, it really popularized the concept of having a solid shirt and a solid tie of the same color over the solid shirt. Only the bearded hat guy would notice that. Hell yeah. Regis, rocking it out. <laughs> All right. Uh, Zach Rettig writes, uh, two-part question. I've read that you said that almost nobody came out of All-Stars with their legacy intact or improved. So my question is, A, whose legacy came out the best, and B, whose came out the worst? Okay, um, there's lots of answers for this. I don't want to talk too much about this because we'll go into our All-Stars podcast, but... The legacy most improved, this is going to be a controversial answer, but I've always had Ethan. I think Ethan came off like a little badass in All-Stars, in all and it kind of negated that image that he was just the cute, nice one that won Survivor. Like in All-Stars, he had some fight in him, and if I recall, he's the last winner standing. And he put up a good fight in All-Stars, and I think it really kind of changed the opinion of what people think when they thought of Ethan. So I think Ethan came out with his legacy the most improved. Even though he didn't win, I think people changed how they viewed him. Whose legacy came out the worst? I hate to say it, but Rob Sestanino took such a an immense hit; it absolutely killed him, and it's it's so painful for me to watch when I see that episode. Uh, me next. Um, sure. I I think that I like your answer in Ethan, and uh, I think that that is a really interesting point that I'd love to delve into in the All Stars podcast. But I think that the real answer on whose legacy came out the best it's the person who is now literally the face of Survivor. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's really tough to say, but, Zoe? you know, yeah, exactly. Zoe came out the best out of Survivor All-Stars. <laughs> she it's, works hard, she plays hard, boy. <laughs> it's got to be Boston Rob Mariano because oh. he is, I mean, he was he was a fringe guy to get in at the first place. And then he, you know, but for better or for worse, it's basically that that makes Boston Rob literally a godlike status for a while, gets him back on Heroes versus Villains, and then back on Redemption Island where he finally wins. The four-time Odyssey journey, the guy who the people equate with with good survivor play these days is Boston Rob Mariano, and it all takes place because he got on to Survivor All-Stars somehow. Who came out the worst? It's got to be Sesternino because the two, the two targets going in were really Sesternino and Richard Hatch. And Richard Hatch got, I think, like, I think Richard Hatch, and I'll say this in the All-Stars podcast, I hate, you know, spoiling it, but I think that what happened to Richard Hatch in Survivor All-Stars is, I think, the best outcome possible that could have happened Absolutely. for Richard Hatch. So, you know, it was all done. He lasted a little bit because Mogo Mogo didn't go to tribal council, and then they all very laughingly voted him out, and he laughed it off, and it was great. That was great. I, I really do like that. See, I'm going to agree with, with Jay here about about Boston Rob that, you know, that, that I think that's important that what you said, what he did in season eight is what you know, allows him to come back back twice again. So by far, Boston Rob. And to be a little bit more cliche, I'm actually going to say that Lex comes out the worst from it, which is really unfortunate Ooh. that... Which That's and I hate answer. because I I mean I love Lex and I still really do love Lex and I and I really kind of feel bad for the guy because I mean he's such a badass and he's so good at the game and he understands it so well and there was just such a huge section of the, of the Survivor fan community that called him nothing but a little baby bitch and he just is whining and stuff and it's way more complicated than that just to call Lex a crybaby and so it's really unfortunate that he comes off the season you know with so many people thinking so lowly of him because he really is one of the greatest that the game's ever seen. All right, next question. Uh, is it me? I think it's Paul. Paul. 
Okay, fine. Um, Elizabeth Reed writes to us and says, After 13 years, why is the price still only $1 million? Meanwhile, probes per net have all made gazillions of dollars. I'm sure it's very expensive to produce the show. I know there are hundreds of people behind the scenes, but it just doesn't sit well with me. Um, well, I think the reason is, one, that just it's easy to say $1 million has a nice ring to it, and I don't think there is enough of an uproar that you know, that people aren't going to show up if you don't offer it. And, you know, it's kind of like, what are they going to offer now? Like $1.2 million. And, <laughs> and I mean, Big Brother gets away with giving half, half a million dollars away now. So I just think that you're still going to people showing up. I don't think, I don't think changing the, how much money they give away is going to change how they get people to be on the show or how the viewing audience or how ratings affects it. So they're not going to touch it. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's just a nice round number, and it sounds like a lot of money, even though, as Jeff Kent pointed out, it's, what, 500000 after Obama takes his share. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> I think the That's impo- a great quote. It's a great quote. I think the important thing is what Paul talked about. On Big Brother, the prize uh, is, is half a million, and on other shows, you know, the prize is less. So, you know, it's like, well, how come Survivor hasn't upped their prize status? Like, it's still one of the top prizes out there. Like, not too bad. Well, yeah, you think back to old shows like the dating game when the prize was just another contestant. So, you know, we've come a long way. Zing. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is from Nation Power. He writes, you all seem to be survivor purists, and there's not, definitely nothing wrong with that. It's the mindset most people have with their favorite things. So what things about early Survivor are you glad are not present in later seasons? This is one I had to think about for a long time. I've been looking over these questions for a couple of days, and I'm like, what is something I, I am glad they don't do anymore in? The only thing I could say I'm glad they don't do is is straight pagongings with no twists. Just because it gets a little intolerable in, in Africa, Australia, when it just plays out really, I mean, obviously what's going to happen. Just I don't have a problem with that. It's just not very exciting TV. So I'm glad there's some twists in the game. I'm glad starting in season three they started realizing that it's just really boring to watch five pick off four slowly over four weeks. But that's really about it. I'm such a purist. I can't think of anything else that I, I'm glad they dumped. See, I had to think about this one a lot, too, and the answer I'll give that, even though that we have discussed that in a lot of ways we appreciate the way the earlier seasons were edited where they didn't, you know, spell it out to you so blatantly. It's this person or this person going home, and they leave a lot up to mystery. I do think, um, and and they they get better, uh, you know, about it even by Africa and by... um, and by Marquesas and on and stuff. But in those first couple of seasons, sometimes we went challenge, tribal council, maybe an interview in between. So I think the timing as far as where, you know, when does the challenge, you know, happen in relation to the uh, tribal council is a little bit better now. Well, now sometimes it's ridiculous. We only get one challenge and it's like 30 minutes of strategy talk, which is a little bit too much. But in general, I think from the first couple of seasons at the, the, when they place certain things in the episode is a little bit better. I think, and this is going to be a controversial opinion a little bit, one thing that I'm glad that they don't do is I think that some of the really early challenges that they did were really bad. Um, and maybe not not so much out there, but just how they read on TV. Some of them are terrible, and I think that something that they do well, and, and, and there are some problems with challenges in a lot of modern Survivor, just that, you know, run somewhere, untie some puzzle pieces, do a puzzle that, you know, is the is the winner or you know go somewhere get some bags and you have to throw the bags at targets or something like that and what now but you know usually challenges have to end with people crossing uh, a finish line together or like planting a flag or doing something that raises a flag there's some visual cue to kind of end a challenge and some of those early challenges is just like they ran it and then they were done 
And, you know, uh, one, one that I can remember, that a challenge that really just sticks in my craw, and this is Borneo, and I know it's not fair because it's Borneo, but it's that one challenge, and it's cool because it's at night, and it's where they the tribes have to, like, run into the one thing and find, like, the three uh, items or whatever, one was, like, a knife and a water bottle or and, and something like that, and then the Tagi tribe messes it up. Like, Richard takes the duplicate knife, and then, the you know, as, as Jeff explained the challenge, if you take a duplicate, that counts as one for the other team. But they had to find three things. So if you found one wrong thing, you basically lost the challenge by default. Yeah. It's just bad TV. Like, it is, yeah. it's not like the concept of the challenge is bad. It's just bad TV. And I feel like they've gotten a beat on what looks good on TV now. Not that I'm saying I like the challenges, but just uh, something that I'm glad on is some of those challenges, some of those early seasons, it's like, are you kidding me with this challenge? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, it's... Some of the early challenges are so simplistic, and they didn't really know how to film them or anything. Right. Something I wish that they did do, though, today that they did in the old days is I really miss the fire-making challenge because that's got the visual cue, right? Like, you make the fire, mm-hmm. and then it, like, burns a, a rope away or whatever, and it raises a, a flag or, you know, goes something off. Like, let's bring that one back. That's a fun challenge. Yep. All right, who's next? Uh, it's me, I think. Um... Carl Bainbridge writes, do you think that the entrancement of alliances and strategies in Survivor would have been as strong had Hatch failed to win Borneo as I imagine Hatch's edit if he didn't hadn't have won to be quite condemning if the way he played the game, dare I say almost Hans-like, which I can imagine not going over well with audiences of 2000. Um, so basically what he's saying is, is that if Hatch doesn't win... Um, does does alliances take a little not come about? No, alliances are going to come about, and it's tough for me to say that a Pagong member wins Survivor Borneo. It's probably yeah. someone on Tagi. If if Richard doesn't win it, Rudy wins it, or Kelly wins it, or Sue wins it, and the alliance is then just painted through their eyes instead of uh, Richard. I'd agree with that. Yeah, alliances were coming one way or another. And again, I always point out that Richard didn't invent alliances. Stacy was talking about him before he was. In fact, BB and uh, uh, who was it? Ramona were talking about it in like the first ten minutes of the episode. Well, anyone is too pushing too barky for Stacy because she doesn't move her ass. <laughs> wow, she's just nice too callback. prim. She's too prim. <laughs> um, all right, Heather Short says here. I want to ask about Jay's various kinds of hats. I'm a fan of hats. I'm a fan of hats too, and I own a lot of them. Um, I'm sort of into, I, I usually wear a, a newsboy style hat, uh, most days because it goes well with a beard, but, uh, I'm a fan of fedoras. I'm a fan of things with, with wide brims. That's kind of my thing lately is big wide brim hats. It's kind of fun. And, uh, it's not very survivor related. So let's keep going. And, and <laughs> I know you didn't ask me, Heather, but my head's too big. Hats don't look good on me. <laughs> Next. I'm super flattered by these questions, by the way. Thank you. I'm just trying to move it along. All right. Uh, Michael Whitmore asks, as of 2003, who were the most important figures of Survivor? Which four players would have been on, would have been on the Survivor Mount Rushmore? All right, this is 2003, so we're going into All-Stars. You want a Mount Rushmore. And I'm going to say, just you didn't say this, but I'm going to say I have to pick two males and two females. And I'm going to okay. tell you right now, I'm going to tell you right now, the two females I will pick going into All-Stars for the biggest names in Survivor history is I'm saying Kathy Vavrick O'Brien, who I don't think anybody can debate because she was so hot right then that I think she was as big as the number two female I'd put on there, which is Colleen. So I'd put Kathy and Colleen, and that kills me to not put Tina on there. But Kathy and Colleen, for my males, you got to pick Hatch just because he's Richard Hatch. In 2003, who would have been the second male? Sesternino is a trendy answer. I don't know if he was as hot as Kathy, popularity-wise. 
So I could go Colby or Ethan. And history has chosen to say Colby was the golden boy of Survivor, the darling. I'm going to say I think it was Ethan. So I don't know. This might be controversial, but I'm going to say Kathy, Colleen, Hatch, and Ethan. Those are my four. Hmm. So we have to follow the, the two girl, two boy rule? You can do whatever you want. That's how <laughs> well, I interpret well, that. I'll, it's I'll, easier. Yeah, I'll follow it too. So. Um, I agree about Kathy, uh, that Kathy was hot, hot, hot. But I'm actually going to put, I'm going to put Jerry Manthe on mine just because she is the villainess of Survivor and there's yeah. no one we love to hate more than Jerry Manthe. Um, and then I got to put Richard and I'm going to put going into All-Stars. I'm going to throw Rupert up on there because he was the, he was the shit um, around that time. So those are my four. Yeah. I kind of forgot about Rupert. He's a good pick. Yeah. Damn it! I was gonna say Rupert. <laughs> um, my, I, I, you put Richard Hatch, and then I would put Rupert slightly over. I would say Rob C over Colby. Uh, not to say that I think that Rob was was bigger than Colby, but you know, with a Mount Rushmore, like you know, for God's sakes, Teddy Roosevelt is on Mount Rushmore. You know what I mean? Like uh, to me, I look more. I guess it's not. It, the, the question is, who are the most important figures of Survivor? I guess it's not the most popular. So I mean, Richard Hatch is important first winner. Um, ambassador of survivor i like it i would actually put rob c because i feel like he uh you know has done the most and we ta- i think he's the most important figure of the of the uh, first seven seasons so i would put richard hatch rob c i would put kathy because i think kathy is a good archetype and uh i really like paul's answer of jerry um i would I, to me it'd be a, it'd, it'd be a toss-up between jerry and elizabeth not colleen yeah, Elizabeth is a good one, too. I mean, it, all the people we picked are good, and my Ethan choice seems very slight now that I think about it, but I don't know. I'd have to put Ethan or Colby, and I just do think Ethan was more beloved at the time. But again, all the people we named are valid choices. So, I mean, you could pick any of those people. All right, you're up, Jay. Uh, Josh M. writes in, Paul, makes some comments about interacting with Lil and Rhino. Would he be willing to elaborate on those encounters? Well, I think Mario had the interactions with Lil, and that's when you when she wrote to you about oh, the twenty fifteen yeah. and her granny panties and all that business. So I never interact <laughs> with Lil. The one interaction interaction I had with Rhino and actually was Krista and I think it was the same it might actually been two different chat rooms. At that time that's when I was like really like, Oh, there's like a survivor community out here and I think Rhino was when I always ran into at um, Rob Sestino's first project was called the Fishbowl. And he mm-hmm. had a chat room on there, and there would be some survivors that the whole the whole premise of it that would, that there are these reality stars that would kind of pop in and out, and their kind of their motto was you never know who might pop in. And so I had talked to Rhino a couple times just via via chat on there, and I remember he um, um, I remember one time I told him that he that he he and the Morgans were being so unfair to Sandra when when she ripped down their shelter because she was just doing what she was supposed to and they were you know, they called her pussies and, and or whatever they did and bitch, whatever they did. So and he didn't like that. He he said I didn't know that because I wasn't there. So Ryan put Rhino put me in my place. And um and then Krista I remember popped into the CBS chat room. Um and um I remember she was because it was Rupert was going to All Stars, so she was kind of talking up Rupert and stuff. And I remember asking about what was it like living with Dara, and she said all she did was talk about uh, chocolate chips and boob jobs. So that's my <laughs> that's interaction. With, that's my interaction with the uh, with the Survivor Pearl Islands contestants. All right, Jay, let me read this next one because I have the answer to it. Go for it. All right, this is from Charlotte Ducharme. She writes, uh, "Hey guys, love the podcast, but I've always had a question about Survivor Amazon." Why was Ryan voted out first over Daniel? It seemed like Daniel was the one who messed up in the challenge, and Dave wouldn't even vote for Ryan. 
was it just because Roger hated Ryan, or did they think Ryan was more of a threat than Daniel? And I, I didn't know the answer to this. I've always assumed the reason Daniel or Ryan was targeted over Daniel was because Ryan was just more dangerous. Like I hate to say this, but I, I never thought Daniel had all that much going on. He didn't seem all that bright. And I know he was kind of sick. He really wasn't with it half the time out there. Ryan just seemed like he's a little more dangerous, like he was someone you'd kind of want to get out. So my answer would have been, well, I figure Ryan was just more dangerous. But in my, in my infinite wisdom, I'm like, well, I don't know crap. I'm just some guy who watches the TV show. How about I ask someone who actually was there? So I emailed Rob Sesternino and I asked him this question. And I, I posed my theory. I'm like, is it because Ryan was more of a threat? And, and Rob's, Rob's response is classic. This is something I love telling people. So much happens on Survivor that is not game-related. Like, you made a bad move, it backfired, someone voted you out. There's a lot of stuff that happens on the show that has nothing to do with the game itself. It's just based on something that happened before the show, happened during interviews, maybe you didn't like someone. This is, this is Rob's response, is that he said, uh, Rob said, uh, I think it was because Roger thought that Ryan was a punk and didn't like him. He goes... I don't really feel like Roger felt like Ryan or Daniel was a threat strategically. And here's the part that's great. Sesternino said, the big thing that people don't know is that Ryan got diarrhea at Ponderosa during the pregame. And so all night he was going up and down the stairs while we were trying to sleep. So Ryan's going up and down the stairs to the bathroom and he's pissing everyone off So because he's waking them up. And so, and so Rob says, the thing is, Roger got pissed that this kid kept him up all night and Ryan never really rebounded. So... The answer to that is Ryan got voted out because he had the Hershey squirts during pregame. So really, that's that's the answer. Fucking pregame alliance. That season's <laughs> bullshit. Get it out of here. But there's so much. Like, there's something in Vanuatu very similar. Why the fat four teamed up against the or the fat five, or whatever four against the older guys against the younger guys. And there's a similar thing that something pregame happened that did that set the whole game in motion that most fans don't even know about. So we'll get to that. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens that you would never even know unless you were a player. Yeah, I mean. There's a lot that people usually don't think about when when they think about the game. I mean, these people, it's not like they, you know, it's it's really funny because it's not like these people just get dropped off a plane, you know, and, and then put out there. And I mean, even in, in Australia, when they were literally on a plane and got dropped off on a plane and went out there. But I mean, they're doing promo shots beforehand, you know, they're they're going places and, you know, a lot of times they're seeing people and they're not, they're instructed not to talk to each other until the game actually starts. But you know how it is. You can do nonverbal communication things going on. And sometimes those things last and sometimes they don't. Like sometimes some people will eye each other up like on the car ride in or something like that and be like, give a nod. Like, yeah, you and me, let's do this thing. But then once they start opening their mouths, they're like, oh, shit, I can't work with that person. But, you know, stuff goes into the game that we don't even see. It's not like these people are seeing each other for the very first time when, you know, Jeff Probst is like, welcome to Survivor. They're like, oh, really? Oh, oh, there's people here. How you doing? Oh, cool. All right, uh, go for it, Jay. You're next. Damien Crawford writes, Do, don't know if this was covered, but what did y'all hear about the aborted twist in Australia? Was there was an Africa-like tribe swap was supposed to ha- where an Africa-like tribe swap was supposed to happen, but was canceled due to other factors? I think I heard this from a survivor in an interview where I believe the odd-numbered tribes stopped the twist. Yeah, well, didn't Tina write about this uh, in an article, Mario? Yeah, it was. There was supposed to be a twist, and it just. For some reason, logistically or the way the game was playing out, it just didn't work out as well. I forget. I don't know the details, but I have heard Burnett or Probes. One of them said the same thing that, yeah, there was supposed to be a twist in Australia. It just didn't happen. So, which, again, backs up my theory that the twist in Africa wouldn't have happened if the Samburu elders were leading the charge. The minute the mall rats got in charge, I've always believed the producers are like, okay, time to do the twist. <laughs> so that's all. It backs up my theory that something similar happened in Australia where it just wasn't right for the twist to happen. Yeah. 
I mean, you you got to figure that they've got several things in their pocket of, of where, how they want things to go, and then they change it. Like, you know, you know there was probably shakeups going on in Survivor Palau, but then when they saw that Karor kept winning and Ulan kept losing, they were like, no, 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 keep that shit in. Let's keep yeah. this going. <laughs> yeah. All right, Paul. All right. Brian Drisman asks, what TV shows do you guys watch besides Survivor? Do you watch other reality shows too? Well, I'll speak for myself that nothing comes close to Survivor, and um, but I also and I've cut back over the years just because as my life has become more busy and stuff, I don't have as much time for TV in general. And reality TV is a little more stressful to keep up with because there's always that pressure of of being spoiled by stuff. So um, he's uh, provincial now, folks. He's provincial. <laughs> well, I mean, I do, I, and I, I, but I actually have filled my time more recently with with comedies and other things that I can, you know, get on DVD and, you know, watch in a weekend rather than keeping up with a, with reality show and stuff. But uh, I've watched Amazing Race since it started. I've watched Big Brother since season two. I loved The Mole. Not when it was out, when it, you know, I think Mario was someone who, you might have been the one who really kind of, well, I don't even know. I don't know if it was The I Mole w- that kind of brought us together or if I, because I think I kind of liked it independently too, but I didn't see that when it aired. I, I kind of had to watch it later and stuff. So we're all going to talk up The Mole here. But but yes, I, I do watch kind of the big reality shows I, I, I tend to follow. Yeah, for me, what's what's interesting, most people might not know this, I don't really like reality TV, <laughs> which I, I've, not, I've also not really, don't really consider Survivor reality TV. In fact, the first seven seasons... Mark Burnett in particular would go out of his way to say this isn't reality TV, this is unscripted drama where we have actual footage and I mold it into a drama. So I don't, I don't, I've never considered Survivor to be the same genre as some of these other shows. In fact, I've never seen an episode of Big Brother. I've never seen The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. I watched some of the, some of the more, the, I would call it creative shows, like The Mole was just a really creative show. It was different. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never liked the concept of reality TV and I really have never liked the concept of reality People on TV, reality TV, becoming professional reality TV contestants at like being their profession and then becoming celebrities for basically doing nothing where they're just famous because they're on TV. So the whole Paris Hilton stuff, Kim Kardashian, I I just do not like that aspect of American culture. So I I, I am not really a reality TV fan. And I will say Survivor, everyone knows that's one of my favorite shows. I really don't like it as much now as I did in the early days. Clearly, you hear me talking seasons one through seven. That was my bread and butter. But it's not my all-time favorite TV show. My all-time favorite TV show is Mystery Science Theater 3000, and that's one Jay and I have talked about. I mean, I cannot say enough about show, that show. If you ever want to learn to be funny, just watch Mystery Science Theater. You watch that show enough, it will alter your brain in that you think of jokes before they happen. In re- you, st- mm-hmm. you start thinking in jokes more often. It's just mm-hmm. all you do is think quip, 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 reference, quip. That's all you do. It just it will fundamentally alter your brain and make you funnier and, and just sharper witted. So I love that show. That is my all time favorite TV show. I've introduced so many people to it over the years. And I will say, thanks you for asking, but my favorite episode of all time is The Puma Man, which is one of the later episodes. Uh, but, see, yes. see, my, my favorite TV show of all time is Paris Hilton is my new BFF. So, <laughs> you know, we're different, oh, you're we're so different people. Dead dead to me paul yeah and the other show there's two shows that are really my bread and butter neither one survivor actually the other one is saturday night live which Mm. i have i've not missed an episode of that since 1984 and i know it has so many legions of people that hate it trash it but i've never been more loyal to a show than snl i love everything about it i love how it ebbs and flows I i love the changes i love how its impact on american society culture humor i mean no tv show has impacted american pop culture more than snl since 1975 you go back and you look at the people that came off of that show eddie murphy bill murray i mean dan Aykroyd. you got go later will ferrell i mean tina fey i mean this is all because of lorne michaels and snl that is 
to me, the most significant American TV show since the 70s. That, that thing's amazing. So Mystery Science Theater, SNL, and Survivor, those are my big three. I, um, I don't watch SNL very much. I did at certain points, so I can't, uh, I can't be with you on that. But I did read that, uh, that oral history book, Live from New York. Yes. And uh, I can't recommend that high enough, highly enough. It mm-hmm. was really good. So I will say that. Um, I mean, I watch a lot of television. I'm not going to lie to you. I watch a lot of television. Not a whole ton of it is reality TV. Um, you know, it, I guess if I had to list my favorite shows of all time, Survivor is in a special category because I have a special relationship with Survivor. It's just, you know, this thing that I've watched forever and ever and ever and it's just on a different plane but you know some of my favorite television shows are very much not reality shows like breaking bad the sopranos the wire um the shield uh friday night lights you know they're shows that are very good arrested development the comedy uh is very good but you know i do have a soft spot for uh survivor for uh most extreme elimination challenge when it was on uh, some of those things, reality shows. I just started watching Big Brother not too long ago. Um, Who done it on ABC? I thought was fantastic all the way through this. Uh, the, the first season it was on. I watched the mole. The mole. I can't talk highly enough. Um, but of course, that's not on TV anymore. Uh, I do watch some other reality shows that aren't so game showy uh, in the sense that I do watch Project Runway. Um, I think that show has got a lot of merit to it, uh, and I do try to catch Top Chef, although. You know, sometimes I don't. Like, those two shows, Project Runway and Top Chef, if I miss an episode, oh, well, you know, not, not too bad. But, you know, like Survivor, I can't, you can't miss one. You got to watch it all the way through. I do, uh, my, my DVR does tape for me because it thinks it knows better than I do uh, shows like MasterChef or Hell's Kitchen when they're on or something like that. And, you know, if I'm super bored and, you know, I'm just vegging out, maybe I'll put an episode or so on. But I can't say that I watch those on a regular basis. But uh, so I guess for reality TV, it would probably be Survivor, Big Brother. Um, I don't watch The Amazing Race anymore. I did up until about season 12 or 13 or so. And then I, I kind of stopped a little bit, a few seasons, like the Dustin and Candace when they were on. That was sort of, eh, I watched a few more afterwards with the Harlem Globetrotters and the Cowboys, but I don't watch it anymore. So I guess Survivor, Big Brother, and uh, whatever is the uh, reality show du jour of the summer, I guess is what I am on. By the way, just before you, we move on, you mentioned the oral history book of SNL. This is Paul, if you don't know. This is where all these former cast members on SNL just uh, provided their thoughts and anecdotes about the history of Saturday Night Live. And it was kind of laid out chronologically and just little anecdotes of people tracing the history of the show. It's a really great book. And I've always thought that there's an excellent oral history of Survivor book waiting to be written someday. And it's just a matter of getting all the uh, permissions and interviews. So there, someday there or will be a great can, Or they history. could just interview Russell Hans, and I would be just fine with that, too. <laughs> yeah, or that. All right. Uh, here we go. Carol Zalewski writes, What two characters from the first seven seasons do you wish you could have seen interact that, that did not appear on the same season as each other? And this is one. You could go on this one for 30 minutes brainstorming two characters. I mean, there's, like, obvious. Right? Like, there's Zoe and Gene. Like, that would have <laughs> been fun. Fucking Gene. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean... Pick the most over-the-top character. Sandra is one. Who would Sandra be fun to play off? Like, Sandra and Hatch would be fun just... Or Sandra and Rudy, just bouncing them off insults off each other. See, like, I, I, what I was kind of getting caught up on is, like, so take uh, so take Survivor Africa here. You have the already dysfunctional Samburu tribe, okay? Let's take out someone maybe, like, I don't know, maybe Carl or Brandon who doesn't dry, like, have as much drama. Let's throw in Rob Zabachnik and have, like, Rob Zabachnik and Lindsay on the same tribe. <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah, I just picture Rudy with anybody. You, I mean, that's just comedy waiting to happen. Yeah, I never really wished. I mean, it was tough because I guess this is something, again, not to spoil so much the All-Stars podcast that's, that's our next season to do. But, um, you know, you knew that an All-Star season was coming, but I never really thought of um, people interacting with other people. You know, I, I usually tend to look at Survivor seasons as kind of like its one own entity. So I don't even know where to begin with that question. All right, let's move on. Uh, Joshua M. writes, uh, something I'm surprised was left out of the discussion of Survivor Marquesas. A friend of mine who is very anti-reality television told me about this special feature that appears on the DVD for The Running Man, discussing the techniques used to manipulate reality television. I'm not sure if any of you have seen it, but it's one of those people who participates in the discussion is Sarah Jones from Marquesas. She made comments about how they refilmed scenes of her swimming using a professional swimmer and stated the cast were told to start fights at times designated by the producers. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but my friend says that she claimed everything was semi-scripted. I've always wondered about Sarah. Was she bitter about the experience on the show? Did she get one of the worst edits in the history of Survivor to the point where the only thing we remember about her is her breasts? I'm curious if any of you have seen this documentary and what your thoughts about it and Sarah. Um, I have not seen the documentary, although, again, if if you're one of those people that says, well, on Survivor, everything is as it's seen and they don't go back and reshoot things from this time to that time, I don't know what world you're living in. That's just reality TV as it is. Um, I don't know that there is scripted fights as in they hand them pieces of paper, but do the producers start, you know, help kind of generate, you know, con- conflicts and stuff within camp? Absolutely they do. Um, they do go back and reshoot things. Borneo is super guilty of it if you go back and watch it. I mean, that whole go out and get the idol from Snake Island, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, there's a shot, literally, of Richard and Rudy using paddles to, like, brush away snakes, but there's, like, a point-of-view snake camera. Like, (laughs) they're literally just shooting this stuff, and, I mean, they're not reshooting, like, it's not like they do a challenge and, like, you know, Sarah won, and they're like, well, let's redo it because we don't want Sarah to win. But, you know, are they are they reshooting some shots like of someone swimming in or someone, you know, like if, if someone catches something, you know, maybe, you know, they're like, all right, put it back on the hook and then pull it out of the water again real quick so we can get it on camera of you really, you know, reeling this fish in. Absolutely. Yeah, I have nothing to add other than, yeah, like what Jay said, I mean, tons of reality TV and Survivor, of course, fits in that genre. I don't like, call, I don't like calling it reality TV, but yeah, for this purpose it is. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, tons of it is reshot they use body doubles they have they have to have establishing shots that you just can't get live you have to insert other stuff i'm sure producers stir up stuff all the time uh there's all sorts of stories of fishiness with the producers behind the scenes so yeah i wouldn't doubt a lot of that at all i don't think 100 percent of reality tv is scripted i don't think it would be that fun it wouldn't have lasted if, if it was that controlled i think there's a lot of stuff that producers can't control and all i want to say is uh i don't think sarah's bitter at all i think sarah is just telling the truth what a lot of people know and at the time didn't want to hear and I have to say that it kills me that I have not seen that documentary because The Running Man is one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And I own the DVD, but I must own the one without special features. I think I have an old one. So it kills me that there's this documentary out there that I have not seen. So I have to look into that special edition. Okay, Paul, you're up. Yeah, so dang it. I was going to try to <laughs> I like lost my spot here. Hold on one second. Let me mark down this time. You paused again and you lied again. Paused and I lied. <laughs> All right. And while I'm going to cut this part away, like, are we, are, do we have a number we're going to try to hit here or? 
We can hit, uh, hit 50 or because right now we're at 50. 230. Yeah, hit, hit 50 and, and, and then we'll just start doing lightning round. I mean, as quick as possible to get through as many as we can. Okay. All right. Uh, Heather Short writes, my question is about the tribe swaps. As in the first seven seasons, we've seen three swaps. I would love it if you discussed which one was probably the most influencing. Sorry, probably means influential. Let me read that. All right, we have a question here from Heather Short. She writes, my question is about the tribe swaps. As far as the first seven seasons go, we've seen three swaps. I'd love it if you would discuss which is probably the most influential on the rest of the seasons. Um, if she means, so uh, this question I kind of didn't know exactly what she was aiming for as far as influential as for tribe swaps all the way down the road or how influential they were directly in their season. Um, anyone want to take a shot at this one? Yeah, I think she's saying which one influenced the way Survivor developed. And, and the only really answer on that is Africa because it, it was the first yeah. one. It's I mean, the first yeah. one, yeah. I mean, you could say three and four totally shook up the game because you knocked out Silas and you knocked out the Rotus. So in terms of which one affected their own season, three and four are biggies. But in terms of which one was the biggest on the franchise, there's no doubt that three was because it was the first. All right, uh, let's go to uh, from Q Pow, our old friend Q. He writes in, could you please rank the three hosts of the reunion show on their likelihood of besting Rob in the attack zone? <laughs> <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell wins hands down. <laughs> going to try to roll her off like and, rolling Denise in that one challenge. <laughs> and she'll bark louder than Gondia. Yeah. yeah, I don't think Bryant Gumble's going to be fighting. Okay. Yeah, so we'll see. Rosie. Rosie wins. It's unanimous. Rosie beats everyone. Okay, next. Uh, hope, hope it satisfied you, Q. Wow, I'm super ashamed to be here right now. Uh, Michael Whitmore writes, no, I'm not. You guys are great. Who do you think would have been the perfect winner for All-Stars? Who winning would have made the best story and been best for the show? The well, person who should have won All-Stars was someone who... Came very close to winning last time, and then you know they just they need they show their skills again. And they pull it on the end. So I would say someone like a Kathy, a Lex, a yeah. Rob Sesternino is the perfect winner for an All Star season. Just because Kathy was so hot at the time, maybe not by season eight. She might have not been that hot. I mean, Rupert winning would have just been incredible because of his popularity. No, he are he like... won. Okay, he is a winner. He <laughs> won America's Tribal Council. He <laughs> counts as a winner. I won in life. <laughs> Arr, Arr. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that that's the correct thing. The, the, the perfect winner for all-stars would have been someone who came so close or had such a great story the first time they played. Uh, you guys mentioned Kathy, you mentioned Rob C, uh, and stuff like that. I would say Colby would have been one of the Colby. better, better. Yeah, I was just thinking that Colby really redeems himself with that win there. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, is it my turn? Yep. Oh, uh, sure. <clears throat> this is from Matthew Garasio. Number one, is there a non-creepy way to ask Jay if we can be if he can be my friend in real life? I can provide a list of qualifications if necessary. Already kind of creepy, Matthew. Let's keep going <laughs> to the next point. Uh, he didn't add no homo, so I don't know if that one. <laughs> I don't know. Number two, Matthew asks, would you ever consider adding members to the Survivor historians? I can think of nothing better than talking Survivor with you guys. And this is actually something we get asked a lot. A lot of people want to volunteer be our intern, want to research for us if they want to come on the air and talk about Survivor. And I have no doubt there's tons of people that would be great at this. And the only, my only qualification is I love the chemistry that the three of us have, and I don't like messing with chemistry. Chemistry is a very elusive thing to try to play with. You either have it or you don't. 
And I just don't like introducing variables when something's working. So it's no slam on anybody when they ask, can I join? And I say, no, it's just because I don't like messing with what works. And when you have chemistry like the three of us have, it's just something I don't like playing with. My buddy John Norton over at the Tribe of Survivor podcast writes, What was Lil's Survivor epilogue? I know Mario interacted with her a little regarding the Funny 115, but after everything she went through, and perhaps all things considered, after having the hardest experience any player had gone through up until that point, how did she view her Survivor ordeal after the fact? Yeah, I will just say I talked to Lil a couple times, again, through email. I never sensed any bitterness towards the show or the franchise. I think Lil... And again, I, I've taken a lot of digs a little over the years, but she has such a strong, amazing base in her life in general, which is scouting. I mean, she has a purpose, and a lot of people don't have a purpose. Lil's got one. She's this huge, successful leader of a scout troop. All these kids love her. She makes a difference in kids' lives. So while Survivor might not have been her cup of tea, I don't think she really dwelled over it like Deb did, someone like that, because Lil had this amazing you know, support base to go back to, and she once again got back to her purpose. So... I don't think her epilogue was anything that dramatic at all. I think she went back to her normal life. She's happy when fans talk to her. She's happy to explain that the game was not like it appears on TV. It's much more stressful. And then she cracked and she was a normal person and she had a hard experience. And I don't think it really goes beyond that. I don't think it really affected her that much, to be honest. Uh, two beans. First of all, to Matthew from the question previous, if you want to talk Survivor with us and, uh, you know, whatnot, come on in previously on Survivor. We're all there. And uh, talk to us. We're, we're, we're semi-friendly, I think, right? Uh, second thing, something I remember, and, and Paul or Mario, maybe you can back me up. This was back in the time, Pearl Islands, where um, the person who got voted out on Survivor would literally sometimes make an appearance on the Letterman show. Um, yes. Would show up at Rupert's Deli, right? Not, not Rupert from Survivor, but... <laughs> My deli! <laughs> would you like under- to have a pastrami? No. <laughs> it's underground on the beach. What's in that sandwich? Well, it's a damn chicken. <laughs> uh, no, the the Hello Deli that was around the corner from uh, the Sullivan yeah, Rup- Theater. Rupert G. Rupert G. Right. Yeah. And uh, I remember when Lil got voted out, like before the Outcast twists. I remember watching Letterman, and Lil was on there because she had been voted out by the Morgan Tribe and stuff like that. And she was so confident and so affable. Like, and I'm sure Letterman's got spoilers in his pocket. So I mean, I'm, I'm you know. Looking after the fact, there's always a good wink there. But I mean, like Letterman's asking Lil some questions, and Lil is being smiling. She's she says a couple jokes, and the audience laughs. Like she was really good on that one thing. And Letterman's like, "Why they vote you out? You should totally be on there." You know what I mean? And I think you know he's making a nod that Lil is going to come back in that season. But I just remember yeah. that, like Lil, Lil's all right. Lil did okay. Yeah. Again, my my sons and Boy Scouts. I've been a scout leader before. I know I know these people. I know Lils. I know lots of them. This is what they do. This is their life. They live for this stuff. So she loves working with kids. She loves the outdoors. She loves the organization, the ethics, the religion, the whole aspect of scouting. So, yeah, I have, I have no concern that Lil had a hard time at all. She goes right back to what she wants to do. Paul's number one stalker writes, what is the deal? So it's like Jerry Seinfeld apparently is your number one stalker, <laughs> by the way. What is the deal with Paul making homemade Survivor seasons? What can you tell me about these? Well, that's a good question. Oh, Paul. I'll jump into this. This is my stalker we're talking here. Um, <laughs> making Survivor seasons has been a hobby of mine. I've done since the sixth grade. And the past five of them that I've done, I've done one a year for the past five years. And I post them on YouTube. If you want to look them up, it's youtube.com slash Heiko401, H-E-I-K-O-401. No, Heiko's not my last name like Mario thought for many years. It was my name, my German name in high school. 
And um, so that's kind of how the name got branded onto it. But um, if you really, if you like these older seasons of Survivor, that's one thing I have tried to maintain when I do these Survivors. And they're by no means, they're a lot of fun. They're very fun to watch. I'm not, you know, I didn't go to school to be a film director. I don't have a ton of experience with that. But I think I do a pretty okay job of, uh, of extending some Survivor fun if you need some stuff to f- more Survivor fun. And uh, I always do a final two. I never bother with the final three. And, um, if you, and if you want to see some Montana, it's beautiful too. So, uh, you can check that out and leave a comment. They're super good. They're super good. Like, like, I mean, you know, maybe someone can go out there and have better production values and maybe slightly better editing, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is that they're very good. They're super entertaining. Seriously. I don't know. You've, yeah, I, I didn't even know you've seen a second of mine, Jay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was so into some of uh, Paul's homemade mole seasons that some of his contestants thought I was creepy and was lutching on their own. Yeah, that was always the joke. When we were filming, we did... We made some my... of the contestants thought you were creepy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my. No, it was, it was, that was like the running joke because I, I also I did uh, did actually seven between in Montana and Idaho. I did um, versions of the mole. And, like, by the time we did the All-Star season, like, that was the joke we'd be filming, and people would just kind of turn to the camera and go, Hi, Mario! Because it was like everyone, like, knew about this guy named Mario who we didn't know who he was, but he just commented on our video. So, yes. Um, but the next question we have here from Nathan, he says, I'd like Mario to talk about his process in writing the fan fiction series. How did he determine who to cast? How did he decide who would be voted out each week and who would win? And why in God's name did Teresa have to get voted out first? Teresa is awesome, and I don't think there's any scenario in which she's voted off in any season. Also, will he ever do another fan fiction series? Before I turn it over to you, Mario, I learned a fun <laughs> fact about Teresa that she speaks German, and I love Teresa because of that. Next. Go. So you didn't love Teresa before, basically, right? Well, I loved her, and I went into the next level that the fact that she uh, um, uh, is certified as a German speaker by the airline that she used to work for, so... Wow. All right, there you go. Someone, right, asked um, Mario, someone asked Mario about his uh, fan fiction series. I'm going to go uh, get up, get a drink. Uh, I'll <laughs> we'll be back. We'll see in half an hour, Jay. Yeah. I'll, yep, uh, I'll take one for the team on this one. Go, Mario. I will see if I can do this in 30 seconds. Nathan, I know you really want a really long answer. I don't want to clog up because I could do an entire podcast on this topic right here. Um, how did I determine who to cast? I decided who was the most logical person to be an all-star at that time in history, especially if you look at my Hawaii story. That's like a time capsule of who should have been an all-star at that point in history plus Frank, and the reason Frank is cast is explained in the notes, and I don't want to get into it. It wasn't my choice. Uh, How did I decide who would be voted out each week? Just common sense. I just started role-playing. Whatever was the most logical storyline to go down, that's exactly what would have happened. I followed exactly like it would have happened in real life, so it's very realistic. Why in God's name did Teresa get voted out first? This is a much more interesting question. The reason Teresa got voted out first is because in my Hawaii story, the first boot was going to come down to Teresa or Kathy. That was just the common sense. It was going to be one of the women... And I did not have the balls to vote out Kathy right after Marquesa. She was such an amazingly popular player. I mean, she was Colleen-level popular. There was no way I was going to vote Kathy out two months after Marquesa's finale just aired. So I, could, I did not have the stones to vote out Kathy first, so it had to be Teresa. So that's why. And no, I will never write another all-star uh, fan fiction series because there's no audience for them anymore. And we will move on. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Nate Carden writes, what do you think are the producers' largest missed opportunities in terms of twists, casting, or larger game elements over the years? Where could they have changed one element of the game structure to fundamentally improve a season? Well, I don't know if they really could have improved any of the first seven seasons, so I don't really know what I could say to that. And like, I love the first seven seasons so much. I don't. What's the flaw? What they couldn't have done anything to change a season. They all play out exactly like they should. So I don't know if any missed opportunities. 
No, I mean, we think that the first seven seasons were pretty good. I mean, I think that they introduced the Africa, uh, the, the tribal switch in Africa very well. It obviously worked well in row two. I think the outcast stuff and everything in Pearl Islands was fantastic. Um, just to go a little ahead, uh, something that I think would have been fun, um, Survivor Palau. They started with 20 individuals, and then they put them on a beach. Two people won individual immunities or whatever, or, you know, thing right at the beginning. And then they basically left them on their own as, like, a, a, an, an amalgamated, you know, just a tribe of 20 people. Like, there weren't distinct tribes yet. And then they basically were, like, building a shelter and getting around and getting to know each other. And this was all leading up to a schoolyard pick a few days later where the two people that got the necklaces, one man, one woman, basically started a, a schoolyard pick. And the two, the last two people... That, that didn't get picked, they basically were off. So then the show started with two tribes of nine, of 18 people, and then they went on from there. I think it would have been fun if literally they got on the island as, as like a tribe of 20, and for the first three or six days or so, there weren't tribes, and they actually had like a gigantic individual immunity both times, and someone got voted out just with like this colossal tribe of 20, and then they switched it over to, to, to the tribes and then went on with the game. That might have been fun, but I don't know if that would have improved the season or not. That's just... A wrinkle that would have been uh, kind of interesting in my opinion that could have been an actual survivor one world you should be a producer jay mm, i don't know <laughs> um yeah like i said, i mean the they obviously did something so well with the game here in those in the first seven seasons i really don't know what could have changed to make the season any better because i mean we're still talking about it now if we had to talk about what we changed but the last seven seasons uh we'd be here for another few hours so let's move on yes all right, um, we are at, ah, Heather Short asks, what really snowballed the giant phenomenon of the historians? You know, the, you know, the Zoe jokes. I'm a huge fan of Marquesas, and it's currently my favorite season, and you've gotten to so far, and I cracked up with it all. Hope you always find that new Zoe each season and know that we, are all, we were all there. Well, yeah, we keep reaching for that rainbow. <laughs> and no one will be Zoe. <laughs> you just want to fly, don't want to fly too close to the sun with the Zoe jokes. Well, you know, I think the success of Historians is that one that we have so much fun with it, and the show, the material we're talking about is so good, and and I can speak from experience about podcasting about seasons that may be a little bit lackluster and episodes that are lackluster, and and those ones are kind of hard to get through, but because there's so much great material and we know the material so well, it makes it fun and easy for us. Like, we we do hardly any really prep work for this show. I mean, the most is maybe we'll rewatch the season before it airs and jot down a couple notes, but... I mean, I think that's why it's been such a success for us is because it really isn't a lot of work. This is what if we were, you know, if we were friends outside of podcasting and, and we met up, we, you know, we would make Zoe, we could make Zoe jokes all the time because I, I mean, I have different kind of sets of jokes going on these with, with my brother who we've watched these seasons together. And I have different ones with my, with my fiance and, and the show provides so much good stuff that I'm glad that we can capture, you know, some of that here. Did you hear that? If we were friends outside of podcasting, that was like a I, backhanded dig that was, all the way yeah. through there. You that was, son that, of a bitch. That was phrased kind of poorly. There, but. <laughs> we're not provincial enough. <laughs> I don't hang out with Paul because I don't like to be judged. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Tina. <laughs> all right. Nobody trusts that bitch right there. Yeah, again, I just reiterate, we've never met each other in real life, and we probably won't ever meet each other, so no, and it, I mean, this is all we have. And it was really funny, because I visited my folks uh, in Southern California, oh God, it had to be March, April this year, so I mean, we're well into the Historians podcast then, and I think I emailed Mario, and I was like, well, do you want to go grab lunch or something? Mario's like, eh, and I'm like, all right, <laughs> and then that was that. 
That was amazing. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I like to let Joe, Jay know where he stands with me. Oh, that was fantastic. All right. Okay, so as, as we continue with these questions, we've, we've talked about well over 50 questions. Um, and so we're moving into more of these. We want to get to as many questions as possible. So we're going to do these in a rapid fire section. Whoever wants to say something about it, we'll kind of just jump in and keep this moving as fast as we can. We have a question yeah. here from, I'm going to butcher your name, Bartosz Drzkenorwijk. This is probably the biggest and possibly the only Polish Survivor fan writing to you. I love listening to your podcast and hearing your thoughts and stories about individual episodes and characters as they were airing on TV years ago. I have a couple questions. Which player from the first seven seasons that you've met in real life surprised you the most and why? Who is your least favorite player from the first seven seasons and why? And he asks, can you give me a shout out in your hilarious Rupert voice? So I think uh, I've not met any in real life, so I'm kind of out of this one. Uh, okay, I will tell you just this uh the survivor that I met the, in real life that surprised me the most, um, I got to meet Boston Rob way back before he was really famous. He was just coming off Marquesas. No one really, there was no Boston Rob survivor legend yet. He was just some smart aleck kid from Boston. And I was there at an event with my wife, and we had our uh, my son with us, and my son was about five months old. So we had a little baby with us in the carrier. And Boston Rob comes over, and he's cooing and ooing and awing over my son, my little baby. And he says, can I pick him up? And so Rob, he's like, most people don't know this. I love babies. I'm so good with kids, and kids love me. And so he's, he really doesn't even want to talk to us. He just wants to interact with the little baby because he's really good with little kids. So that's, I think, one thing that would surprise people. That I don't know if he's still like that. This was about 10 years ago, but that's the one interaction that kind of surprised me. Like, wow, Boston Rob is a big baby person. Uh, who was my least favorite player from the first seven seasons and why? I don't really have any players I dislike from the first seven seasons. I'm, I will say I had an interaction with... Uh, Kim Powers and Kelly Goldsmith at an event once, and I thought they came off like little snots. They really didn't want to interact with fans. They were mad that they didn't get like a red carpet, that they had to interact with the fans and go in with them. They didn't get their celebrity entrance and stuff. So the only thing I've ever seen in real life, I'm not a big fan of Kelly Goldsmith and Kim Powers, but that's really about it, and that's just one event they could have been having. They could have been having a bad day for all I know, so I don't really hate anybody else. Oh, and you want to shout out in the Rupert voice, all right. <clears throat> the Rupert voice hurts my throat, so I hope you appreciate the sacrifice. Hey, Bart, this is Rupert. I hope you don't get buried in a beach shelter. That's, uh, that's all I got. You, you didn't want to do like a Rupert uh, sex line, uh, 900 line kind of thing? If he was a female, I would have. I'm not. <laughs> That'd be expensive to call from Poland to yeah, do that. So. Exactly. Just as a real quick thing, I've never met any survivor either. I've talked. I've been on uh, Rob Has a Podcast with Rob, so I've talked with him. Uh, he seemed, uh, he's very nice. Um, that's all I've got. <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Uh, we skipped one. Uh, about Chris from David M. He writes, about Krista. Right before the season started, she got busted by the smoking gun website for trying to get drugs from Usenet. So, uh, some, uh, so, or something. so people started the season thinking she was the worst and her voice didn't help. It was actually kind of neat to see Krista become more beloved by the viewers during the season, especially when she carried the poll in the challenge. Krista's great. Yeah, this is something a lot of people don't know, that there was a uh, <clears throat> controversy before Pearl Islands because Krista... There was a post from Krista on some website looking for meth or something like that. She's like, where can my boyfriend and I get some meth? And I think someone asked Krista about that in a website in, a, in an interview after the season. She's like, that was a joke. I was just fucking with people on a message board. So I don't know if she was actually asking for meth. I'm not sure why you would do that if you really were looking for meth. But since Krista's kind of odd, I would buy that she was just messing with people because it seems like something Krista would do. 
Okay, uh, Damian Crawford, whose idea was it to continue the podcast into a series that looked in more detail at the seasons than what the first episode presented as a one or two episode show? I'm glad you all went this route as it's been a fun ride through memory lane with also adding some new nuggets of information I did not know at the times. Uh, Well, really, it was just the fact that when Mario was getting us together, you know, Beatles didn't didn't really want to do multiple podcasts. He just kind of wanted to do one, possibly two. So really, when we talked about that original, that original, if you go back in our archives, that first one, we literally were like, let's talk about the first four seasons. That was our goal. Do you remember that? Our yeah, goal that was, was to, our goal was to talk about uh, the first four seasons through Marquesas in about two hours because that's what we had time to do. And we horribly failed at it. We talked about Borneo for like an hour. Then we talked about, you know, Australia for literally like 35, 40 minutes. And we were like, oh shit, we got to get to Africa and Marquesas. And we started talking about Africa for like 20 minutes. And we're like, we got to fucking go. And we didn't get to Marquesas and stuff like that. And, you know, we did it and, and we, I know that we, we did that podcast and then Mario was like, I'll release it and see if people like it. And people, you know, told him that, you know, feedback was good. And Mario was like, I like to keep going. And, and, you know, Mario's like, would you like to keep going, Jay? And I said, yes. And Paul presumably said yes, because he's here now. And then Beatles said he didn't want to do it anymore. And Mario's like, do I continue this without Beatles? And the answer was yes. And here we go. And then it just, the format just got, we just had more that we wanted to talk about. And someone, you know, we we covered Borneo because we sort of talked a lot about Borneo in that first episode. And so then when we redid Borneo, we sort of, covered a lot of the stuff and then you know we were like well australia's gonna take a couple podcasts and then you know we just got to talking and got to talking and you know then all of a sudden thailand part one is literally two episodes long or you know covering in three hours so there you go yep yeah, that's like how it went it's just much. it was too we were the first one was too rushed it, the format was just wrong so we decided okay do over let's start over and do it right Tyler Barnick asks, regarding Survivor back when it was between seasons one and eight, if Survivor ended on one of those eight seasons, which would you have had it? Which one would you have wanted it to end on? Mario's gonna say Pearl Island, so that All Stars <laughs> would have never happened. Yes. Well, you got to end it on the one that Amber wins everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, greatest player ever. I mean, it's she's. Uh, everyone agrees that she's the greatest player ever. We stop right there. There you go. Done. I mean, no, yeah, Pearl Islands. <laughs> yeah. How else would we know if that rice was any good? Exactly. Well, we would have known from Australia. So that's the thing. <laughs> uh... All right. Uh, Sean Mullen asks, who improves the most on a 10-year rewatch and who gets worse? I will say one character that gets funnier the more you watch him and he was absolutely hated at the time is Clay. Clay, Clay. kills me. And and Butch is one that Jay has made me appreciate. Butch is a guy that I appreciate now. So those are just two obvious. There's other answers. Those are two obvious ones that jump out at me. Clay Butch. Uh, I would say Sean from Marquesas. Yeah, Sean's a good one. Sean is great. And, he gets, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he wasn't well-liked either at the time. He wasn't well-liked either at the time, but Sean is super funny. So there's that. Who gets worse on a rewatch? I think that we've chron- – I mean, the legend of Rupert has, has certainly taken a beating over the years. But, you know, some of those earlier seasons just with – I mean, I'm not saying, oh, the strategy sucked. But it's just like, you know, some people that you thought were like super smart at the time, you still have to appreciate. But sometimes if you go back and watch them, you're like, ah, eh, well, whatever. Um, Zoe gets better and better. Gene gets worse. Next. <laughs> uh, Joshua M. It. writes, <laughs> every time Jeff comments on the outcast twists, he always said – that the, had the twist not occurred, Rhino would have been this great all-star worthy player. Jeff also claims Rhino is the best friend he has from Survivor. I think Jeff is being somewhat biased. What are your thoughts? I think you mean Andrew Savage and not Rhino. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've never heard anything about Rhino. I've heard that he's friends with Savage. I mean, I, I don't know the backstory behind this question. 
Yeah, I think that, well, I, he says that claims that Rhino is the best friend he's had from Survivor. Isn't that Savage? Isn't Jeff and Savage friends? And Colby, too. I'm not entarily sure. I don't really yeah. follow Jeff, to be honest. I don't yeah, know who I, his friends are. I don't know that, but I think that. But, uh, well, Jeff is somewhat biased. Jeff, you know, did like Andrew Savage a lot and stuff like that. And, I mean, it is it is for the thing. I mean, I've gone on record. I think Morgan was one of the most inept tribes of all time. That being said, Drake threw a bunch of challenges, and then some breaks went Morgan's way, and they entered the merge even. And Lil, I mean, if Lil doesn't come back, I mean, if they enter the merge with Austin uh, on the one tribe and with Sean on the other tribe, like, Sean's going to bolt before anybody on the Morgans do. I mean, my goodness, it might be a different game. Um, Kapil Chowdhury here uh, asked a question that a lot of people brought up here. Um, They say, I know you guys hate returning players and don't particularly like recent seasons, but I'm going to ask my question anyway. How would you guys compare Lil as a character to Don in Survivor Kara Moen? Listening to you guys on the last Pearl Islands podcast, it struck me that they are extremely similar. Both are old moms who came into the game with a reputation of being unable to lie. Dawn due to her showing on South Pacific, and Lil due to her scout uniform and performance before the Outcast twist. However, getting voted out totally changed their outlook, and they both went on to, as you guys would say, cut a huge swath through the game while leaving incredibly deep craters in their path. Also, they both apparently... Also, they were both apparently incredibly annoying to live with and prone to huge his... <clears throat> how do you say Histronics? Histrionics. And prone to huge histrionics and breakdowns. As a result, they both get smoked in the jury vote. Thoughts? <laughs> My thoughts are yes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's an interesting... Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people A lot of people wrote in with that parallel comparing Dawn to Lil and... Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's that far off. And well, I, yeah, what I think they both bring to it is that that in Survivor, if you're if you're an older woman who cries a lot, it's not going to go well. Like it's one thing that exactly. you're going to have to hide that more. And and even though I think that in a lot of ways they're they're very different as far as Dawn being able to you know own up to the mistakes or own up to the strategic decisions she makes and really you know in her interviews and confessions really understand what she's doing, whereas Lil really didn't yep. understand what she was doing. Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference there. But I think they both drive home the point that there are certain there's there's certain types of people if you act a certain way that the jury's just not going to vote for you. Yeah, it's different situations, but I think Paul hit the key hit the key right there is that Don knew what she was doing in Caramoan whereas Lil didn't until day 39 evening halfway through final tribal council. She's like, <laughs> "Oh, let me own it up." And then, you know, she had some some things right at the end so people are like, "Well, you see Lil was like Don." No, Lil had no idea. She just was emotionally reacting to everything around her, which just makes it that more incredible what she did. I mean, she just tore through the game and had no clue what she was doing the entire time. Whereas Dawn did, and Dawn had what I liked about uh, the Dawn character in Caramoan was that we had these uh, confessionals where Dawn's talking about trying to reconcile like the perception of what she's doing with everything there, and you know it's tough if you're if you're in uh, a mother. Uh, a caring mother and try to play that mother role on Survivor and uh, people will call you out, you know, if you try to make some strategic cutthroat things. I think Dawn had a chance of winning that game had she not completely played the game with John Cochran and, you know, had him basically give the blood totally on her hands. Like, that's her mistake, mainly in Garamoan, is that it's like she can go to the end of the game and go, I own up for all of my strategic things. Oh, and this guy that you totally like was right next to me the whole time. You should, probably should just give him the million dollars. All right, is that my turn? Yep. All right. Uh, Russ Bartlett asks, 
for each of you personally, when you first saw Dead Grandma episode, did you immediately think once Thunder D came out, this is the great lie Probes has been hyping? Or did you not think it was that until after we saw it on TV? Also, do you think most viewers realized or suspected it before the scene of John Dan at camp that confirmed it? That's an excellent question, and I'm trying to think. What I remember, I, I vaguely remember that I could be wrong on this, but I think Probes, you know, was hyping this dead grant, this great lie, great lie, great lie, and I think he even said in an interview or on his website, whatever he was doing back then, it's in the next episode. So when Grant the Thunder D came out and the grandma's dead and she died, dude, it was pretty easy to put two and two together that this was the great lie. So I kind of remember that we knew it was going to be in this specific episode. So I don't think it was that much of a surprise. See, and I know for me personally, I had no idea about this big lie that Jeff Probst was hyping. I was I was in seventh grade at the time, and I remember it aired, and then I was completely shocked. I mean, after the commercial break comes back, we find out about this, and I'm like, what? So I remember being completely floored, and my friend Emily called me on the phone. I can't believe he did that. He's such a jerk. So I remember being completely fooled. Yeah, totally fooled. All right, uh... I know we're going in order down a list of questions. I have about six or seven more really good ones we're probably not going to get to. Do you mind if I just kind of skipped ahead to the ones that I think will be really interesting? Yeah. Go for it. Okay. We'll just kind of finish off the list here. Uh, Andrew Archibald write, writes, Why did Dirk change his shirt during the Borneo reunion? He came on originally with what I think was a Flash t-shirt, but then later on had a different shirt. What's up with that? Yes, yeah, Dirk. A, yeah, Dirk. <laughs> this is a fantastic question because I don't know the answer to this. This is something I have wondered for years. I think Dirk wears four different T-shirts during the Borneo reunion. He changes every commercial break. And I have no idea what that was. And there was all this drama going on behind the scenes, how the players were being forced to be there. CBS was you know, threatening lawsuits if they didn't show up to the reunion. The players didn't want to be there. Stacy was trying to organize them as a, as, a, as a union behind the scenes. So I don't know if it was some protest against... CBS, if his friends asked him to wear these shirts, I have no idea. But yeah, watch the Borneo reunion. J Dirk changes his shirt every commercial break. It's the weirdest thing. All right. Uh, Jennifer asks, what do the three of you do in real life when you aren't podcasting? Work. This is all I do. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a uh, computer programmer, actually. I write medical software uh, for a uh, healthcare company. So I, I'm a big nerd that sits in front of a computer, writes software, and in my downtime, I write survivor articles because you, so programming is very up and down. Sometimes you're really busy, sometimes you're waiting for test results from people. So in my downtime, I do survivor stuff, but I am a programmer in real life. I, uh, I work at a uh, murder mystery entertainment company, uh, helping put on shows nationwide. Hooray! I uh, graduated last year with a degree in German teaching, and I'm uh, going to be actually teaching English in Germany with the Fulbright program. So usually something with working with kids is what I'm doing, trying to get them to do Survivor and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Andrew Archibald writes, uh, why was there little to no backlash on Rudy's comments about queers in Borneo? But there was a much greater outcry after the Caramoan reunion when the, with the very same comment. Do you think it was perhaps that the newer fan base had forgotten who Rudy is or that our culture as a whole has just changed that much in 13 years? <laughs> this is a great question because I remember this. You know, Rudy pops up in 2000. He starts dropping little words and he's calling people queers, queers this, queer this. And what's funny is no one was really using the word queer in 2000. That was such an outdated word. And I think it was one of those things like watching this old guy spout epithets about people that hadn't been used since like 1940 was just kind of a weird quirk about Rudy like that's not even a word people use that would have been like uh, using uh, saying consarnet or something like that from a 1920 it was just I think people just thought it was cute at the time like no one even uses that word so you can't be offensive and 
And it was funny with that after kind of that happened on Borneo, again, no one took offense to it. And then TV shows, TV shows started coming out like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and stuff like that. And where the word kind of came back into society. So I remember Rob C. once joked that, you know, Rudy should be getting royalties from that word because he brought it back into society. But that was the thing. There was no outcry because it was such an outdated word that nobody really used anymore. No one had heard that in 40 years. Well, and I think society and TV was just at a different place back then. And, you know, whether or not, you know, Rudy's comments appropriate or not, kind of brought brought about a discussion about what a homo, you know, different types of homosexuals and how they're being portrayed on television. And uh, we've come a long way since then. And, and it kind of almost felt, I feel like people watching kind of like a step back to, you know, where the, the conversation about about gays and the media and whatnot is way more advanced than it was way back when, when Richard's calling, uh, when Rudy's calling Richard queer and stuff. So I think that's, I think it just, it was too out of place. It was too far removed from the context. Yeah, it's it was contextually bad, and we've come we've come a long way in 13 years. We still have ways to go, but uh, 2012, 2013 is a lot different from 2000. Yeah, people are just more sensitive now, in my opinion. People didn't care as much. <laughs> uh, I would slightly disagree with that, but let's keep going. Yeah, yeah, we don't want. To. <laughs> All right, uh, Russ Bartlett asks, who is Jay's favorite Homestar Runner character? Uh, I used to have a T-shirt that uh, actually my wife just threw away because it was too ratty and old, but it was a The Cheat T-shirt, so that answers your question. All right, from Brian. What advice would you give to someone wanting to start a new podcast? In your theory, what is it that makes a good radio show? Uh, I can answer this one. This one's, a, this one's near and dear to my heart. Money. One of my, no, one of my big idols is Howard Stern. I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. I used to listen to his show all the time. I mean, every single day in the 90s. I read his books, I watched his movie, I mean, I know everything about the man, and one of his things he used to say over and over again, it it pops up all over in his first book, Private Parts, is that the best radio should be when the guest doesn't even realize they're being interviewed, where it's just people sitting down, and it's like, it's like the pre-interview, they're just discussing the life before the show even begins, it's just the the chit-chat, the small talk. He says, what you want is for your guest to forget they're even being interviewed, which is why he doesn't have lights in his studio. He like has all the engineers behind the guests because he wants people to forget that they're being interviewed. So the way that I approach historians is I just want it to be me, Jay, and Paul just talking. Like we're not even we're not even making a radio show in my mind. We're just having a Skype chat and just cracking about the show, cracking wise, and then we're just, Paul happens to hit record at one point, so it gets aired. But that's how I view it. You don't want it to come off as a show. You just want it to be a natural conversation between people. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, yep. that's that's a very good good advice and then you also have to you have to love what you're talking about because if i had to i mean if i was going on just these guys like personality and i like didn't like what we we're talking about it'd be really rough screw you too paul <laughs> all right son of a bitch Chantel Orr writes are you guys going to do historians for all the seasons or is that too far in the future to tell Mario, we're not going to have to do Cook Islands now, are we? I don't know. <laughs> no, look, Cook Islands. People always ask, why do you hate Cook Islands? I'm like, because Cook Islands is terrible. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's too far in, this, in, the, in the future to tell. We have no idea. It's, I could tell you we're going to stop after All-Stars. I could tell you we're going to go to Heroes versus Villains. My opinion on that could change every five minutes. I honestly have no idea. No, we're not, because we're going to do Vanuatu. And if you skip yeah. Vanuatu, I will literally throttle you. Yeah. Now, Vanuatu is interesting because I, I have a lot of my own history wrapped up with Vanuatu. So, yeah, we'll do that one for sure. Now, I think we'll be going for a while. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we got up to the Micronesias and all that, but I have no idea. I can't promise anything. I mean, Paul's moving to fucking Germany. We have no clue. Uh, Brian Wilson asks, is it true that Jay live tweets a bunch of other TV shows besides Survivor? 
Yeah, I do. Uh, this summer, uh, I live tweeted uh, Who Done It, uh, the show. I thought that show was great. I don't know what anyone else thought. I, I was thoroughly entertained by it all the way through. Uh, and I've tried my hand. I, as I said, I recently got into Big Brother, and I've started live tweeting Big Brother and uh, joined that sort of live tweeting things. And I live tweet Survivor at J underscore Fisher. At times, I think I'm funny. Sometimes my jokes miss, but you know, if you generally are entertained by by me at least on this podcast, and you know, some of you out there are saying yes, and some of you out there are saying, "Oh God, no." Either way, that's fine. If you are, come check it out because usually on these things, uh, I like to live tweet them, and I actually find that uh, just reading tweets because not only my live tweeting, but I'm following other people who are live tweeting the show as well, people that I think are funny, and I can definitely give recommends out there for any of you that are looking for people to follow. And, uh, you know, people say some funny crap on Twitter, and I think that it's a, a good supplement to the show, not, you know, because you can watch the show, you can kind of keep your eye on the computer screen as the tweets come in, and you can, you know, just kind of laugh at some jokes. It's almost, almost like a, almost like a mystery science theater, like a, like, or not really like that, but it's, it's like a running commentary as the show goes, and I actually think it's uh, quite fun. All right, I got six more questions. Think we can blaze through them? Let's do it. All right, Will Olson. How do you think the dynamics of Tom McKee would have been different if there was a gay guy in the tribe instead of, say, Ryan Aiken? But don't replace him with Clay Aiken. That's too easy of a joke. All right, so the macho guys of Tom McKee, one of them's gay. Does that change the dynamic? You know, it took, it took until Survivor One World for them to put a, I mean, as far as we know, a you know gay contestant on an all-male tribe. And... I mean, the things, you know, the thing that happened to One World, I mean, Colton was, was kind of, you know, running things in there. So I don't really know what switching out Ryan Aiken with a gay contestant would really do for Tom Bakke, but um, I guess you do have Roger there, so yeah, <laughs> who knows? The, 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 it's just going to come down to who is that person, because I don't think that really at that point i don't think that uh him being gay is going to i mean it could in some ways because obviously you've got roger who's you know probably not so uh, gay friendly and i mean he and alex had that talk but i mean really it's just is how good is his overall personality and demeanor because you know to me it's not about you know is the person gay or not it's that can they manipulate everyone and stay in the game yeah, to me, I don't think it would have made a slightest bit of difference because one person isn't going to change the dynamic of a tribe. I mean, you right. had a bunch of other macho guys and Dave Johnson. I mean, these guys, are, these guys were clearly driving the behavior of that tribe, Alex. So I don't think the, the one gay guy is going to have so much sway that he completely changes the other seven. So I think it makes no difference whatsoever. He's going to probably be smart enough to do his best to fit in and, and trash talk the girls like everybody else is doing. All right. All right, uh, Josh Wilkinson, my question is for Paul. Oh, You're, during the Amazon podcast, you spent the whole time bashing Gene, but I don't think you ever gave us the reason more than just a vague dislike. Can you go into a more detail about what about her really annoyed you? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things that it's kind of like just fun on this podcast when when you have kind of a, a little opinion about someone to keep driving it home until it just gets exaggerated over and over and over again. Um, I don't actually hate Gene that much. She just always was a character that really bugged me because... I felt that she felt like she really kind of was above a lot of things. The fact that she got blindsided when they take out Joanna and she's such a poor sport about it. Rather than trying to change her situation, she kind of pouts about it. 
and I don't like that. And then at the reunion show, she toots her own horn about she was working so hard. And just kind of the stuff she says, just she just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And, you know, she's not a big enough character in the season for it to make that much sense why I keep bringing her up. But um, but that's just kind of the reason. Oh, and, and the final words thing about how in the, in the game of life she's the winner. So she really just kind of ir- always kind of irritated me as a character. And, and this is a good platform to um, bring that annoyance to a whole new level. To bringing down a peg, bringing minor minor characters to light, man. I just gotta say, that's, that's how of, we that's, do. That's one of our fortes here. That's how we do. <laughs> All right, Munib Khan asks, which one-time players would you like to see again? Uh, this one's easy for me. I don't want to see any returning player ever again, so I don't want to see anybody return. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I guess, in a way, you, that's kind of how you, you can say what ultimately All-Stars did for me was that, you know, it was. I guess it's nice to see some players' legacy change over time, but really, uh, you know, you had this thought always when you watched it, like this creeping thought came in after all the seasons. You'd be like, boy, it'd be cool if there was some sort of like All-Stars, or you saw like this one person, but but then you saw it, and then you're kind of like, you know, it's better when it's just a one-time thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I like it. See, mine is easy. Either Linda Spencer, Mother Africa, I'd like to bring that back, or Jean. <laughs> yeah, Linda Spencer, we never really tapped into her character fully. <laughs> okay. I, I just said tapped into Linda Spencer. I'm going to hell. All right, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> this is from Christine McCready. Is Jay doing both the Krista and Rupert impressions, or is Mario doing Rupert? All right, Paul does Sandra. Jay does... Krista, I do Rupert, but we also rotate. Sometimes I do Sandra, sometimes Jay does Rupert, sometimes Paul does Rupert. So we don't really try to tackle Krista. Krista's kind of Jay's baby. Yeah, I you know. I, although I, I got to say, I did the thing last... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I should do this on the air, but I guess, well, it's too late. It's late in the podcast. Uh, I did Rupert, you know, having phone sex. <laughs> and so I had a bunch of people saying, oh, what would be the funniest line for Rupert to say having phone sex? So I got a ton of suggestions. So we're going to do the winner here, and I, 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 I hope... <laughs> Yeah, I hope a lot of my loved ones aren't listening to this. Okay, this is from my, our friend George Hands, one of the funniest guys I know. This is Rupert's ultimate line during phone sex. Let me clear my throat. <clears throat> Baby, I'll get you wetter than a subterranean beach shelter. It's <laughs> amazing. Oh, <laughs> There you go. That's all George Hands. I, I owe him that, so there you go. All right. Uh, this is from uh, Ryan McFarland. Alex Bell recently mentioned on Rob Had a Podcast, Amazon Reunion, that he had found a granola bar wrapper at the bottom of his bag before starting the game. He said that it wasn't him who eaten the granola bar or put the wrapper in there. With a granola bar, granola bar later appearing on one of the, in one of the girls' bags at Jabiru, do you think it is possible that production planted both objects in the contestants' bags to make good TV? Or is it just a weird coincidence? I, again, I don't know anything about that. I have no idea. It's... Wouldn't surprise me if the producers planted stuff like that in someone's bag because I don't necessarily think anyone on Jabru actually had a granola bar. I've never heard any evidence that somebody did other than people saying Christy might have, but I've never heard any evidence. But, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the producers did that. And at least they planted one for each tribe, so they were fair. Exactly. <laughs> any uh, opinions on that, Jay? Nope. All right, and we are to the last question from Maneeb Khan. Here he goes, uh... An interesting what if, and I want your thoughts. Only a few Pearl Islands episodes had aired before All Stars left for filming, but Fairplay's grandma lie didn't air by that time. Do you think Fairplay could have pulled a similar stunt in All Stars if he had been picked and gone that far? Also, do you think he will ever get a chance to play again, or is Jeff's influence too big now? 
secondly, will Fairplay ever play again? I don't think so because I think Probst honestly doesn't like him outside the game in, in personal terms. I don't know. There's a lot of rumors why. I'm not 100% sure there's incidents. Some incident that happened at the uh, Vanuatu reunion, I heard. But no, Probst doesn't like him. And if Probst doesn't like you, I doubt you're going to be and get back on the show. Uh, could Fairplay have pulled another stunt on All-Stars? I have heard from Fairplay himself that he planned to. He had it all set up. He had something planned for Pearl Islands. He had something planned for All-Stars. So I don't have a doubt in my mind that he would have done something similar. Yep. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing that, that people do. I mean, that's always the exception is that, uh, like, Russell Hance was able to play his, his game twice in a row just because people didn't get to see it all the way through. I mean, you know, people didn't see fair play do the grandma lie. And, uh, you know, maybe you hear of it, maybe you don't. But I, I don't think that, that fair play is going to do the grandma lie twice uh, and stuff like that. But is he going to have something up his sleeve? Absolutely. And with that, I think we have reached the end. I think we answered about 75 questions, which wow. is pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. And I apologize. We had about 30 more I couldn't quite get to. And a lot of them are kind of repetitive, ones that we'd already answered. So don't take it personally if we didn't answer yours. I tried to get as many as we could on as many subjects as we could. And with that, unfortunately, the die has been cast. We are now to the point that we have to do an All-Stars podcast. Oh, shit. Shit. Oh, man. Oh, no, it's going to be fun. I mean, there's things to talk about. I mean, you know, you're only just thinking about the dark side because I know Mario is going to try to paint this brush of, you know, I mean, obviously part of what we do here at Survivor Historians is going to be, you know, talking about putting the putting the legacy in place. And I know Mario is going to, you know, freaking go ape shit with that. But, uh, Paul, I'm excited just for some stuff like All Stars has got some fun, funny moments in it. And I mean, I'm not going to say that the season on a whole was funny, but, you know, when you have those personalities in there, I mean... Again, the Rupert Shelter thing, I'm going to be crying about that for literally an hour because <laughs> it, I'm, I'm literally it, – it's so delicious. The whole scene, the building, the judging of it, everything is just golden with that scene. And, I mean, we've got – you know, Hatch has some really good moments in there. Colby and Hatch have some homoerotic moments in there that, you know, we totally need to talk about. And, I mean, I think that the season is super funny as a whole – just just with individuals doing individual things. So you're going to focus on the legacy stuff. I'm going to focus on the funny, and I think there's actually a quite a bit of it. Yeah, if you focus, I, on, the, if you focus on the way it shapes out, obviously you're not going to like it that much. But, I mean, there's still all these epic players we've talked about over the past 78 podcasts, so there's going to be some good to talk about. I will give credit where credit is due. I think the first four, three, four episodes of All-Stars are hilarious. There's some great moments. I mean, there's some epic stuff like episode one where they all come out and they see who they're playing against that is a season that is a scene that no other season could have produced that is a wonderful moment and there's some really cool stuff but yeah it goes downhill real fast and then you got richard penis gate and all sorts of nasty i mean the boston rob lex stuff i there could not be something i'm less enthused to talk about than that whole mess because it's just ridiculous it's the fact that you have to take a side it just sucks i hate that you have to take a side it, it, it is going to be tough to talk about because I think, you know, some people ask us and, you know, some people have written in and they basically talk about they love our podcasts. We, you know, more than anything, we don't talk about stuff we don't like. There is stuff we don't like about the first seven seasons where obviously as the seasons go on, we're going to increasingly not like some stuff, which is going to be a problem. And people talk about, you know, oh, you guys are so positive. And it's like, then they're like, please go up to Karamoa. And it's like, there's going to be seasons if we go up to Karamoa where we're not going to be positive at all. And I don't know if you really want to listen to that uh, and such. But, you know, with this one, you know, there, there's going to be some negative stuff. And the thing about like the Rob and Lex thing, 
You know, and like the Richard Hatchgate, like, well, there's no side there. I mean, it's just that's just an unfortunate incident that we have to talk about. And then, you know, uh, like Robin Lex, it's like I'm sure at, at a time Mario was pro Lex on that matter, you know, and, and I'm usually fall on the side of pro Rob on this matter. But it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. It's just yeah. not a fun subject to talk about either yeah. way. You know, so it's like, let's have fun talking about Rob and Lex. Actually, we won't because it's not that fun. Yeah, and that's the thing. We're even glossing over the Jenna situation with her mom, which is way more controversial than I think it gets portrayed as. That's one that I'm not really anticipating talking about either because I have a very different opinion than most people that I don't think that she should have been treated that sympathetically. But again, we'll get to that. There's just so much nasty stuff in All-Stars that it sucks. It's just... That's just all I can say. I just don't like All-Stars, what it, what it did to the fan base. But what I'm going to do, and this is my guarantee to you guys, is that for all of this sad crap that's going to go on, you always have to remember, in the wake of Jenna Maraska leaving the show, then we have that challenge where Big Tom gets absolutely brain-smashed by all those fucking pieces of uh, of puzzle or whatever. That's amazing. It is. That's amazing. I, I will do my best to put on a sunny face and be good. <laughs> just that picture of like Rob C like watching just going, damn it, damn it, <laughs> ah yes. And just okay, food for thought. I just, since we're going to be talking controversial stuff sooner or later, it's coming up. I got to play this card right now. I know this is going to get a lot of hate mail. For years, I mean, for the last couple years, I have been a huge proponent of slamming Russell Hans. How he's not good at Survivor how he's the prototype of how not to play Survivor, how he's just someone who had the game in his hand, he pissed it away, he just he, he, he beats himself because he was not good and because his ego gets in the way. Now, what's funny is that for years, there was someone else I used as the uh, cautionary tale on Survivor, and it was not Russell, and that was Boston Robin All-Stars. He was my cautionary tale for years, and all my jury chapters, all my Survivor writings, how not to play All-Stars because it means you played shitty, so... Again, this is if we're going down this path where I start throwing out controversial stuff like that, it can only lead to bad things. So I might as well play that card now. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that stuff when we get there. <laughs> yeah, obviously, no. it's 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 gonna be fun. And uh, I don't know if you guys did because I think someone had a question. We didn't talk about it today, and I don't want to get into it right now because we have to end this flipping podcast and get going to the thing. But someone asked us and said, if you were casting All Stars, who would you have had? And Mario, you've gone on and said today that you thought they did a pretty decent job casting. And I made a list. I did this exercise. I made a list of 18 people. I had the three tribes of six, male and female, and splitting up the ages and all that sort of stuff. And my list is actually very similar to the list of All-Stars that came out. And I'm, I'm excited to see what maybe you guys have a thought on, you know, like if you had to, you know, cast it and stuff, what would you do? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have my All-Star stories out there, which, again, they're kind of nerdy, these stories, but they're good time capsules of what the fan base was thinking at that time. And they've been sitting out there on my archives. So, yeah. I've already done this. If you can, we'll go. We'll talk about this for our, our uh, podcast. Yeah, but I was I was I was surprised because you know everyone's like, oh, would you do it? And I was like, oh yeah, my cast is gonna be so different. And then you sat out yeah. and do it, and you're like, no, it's actually pretty yeah. no, similar. Yeah, there's not much. To, I mean, they had very little wiggle room in some of the casting choices, and it it just worked out the way that it should have. Sure. All right, I know Paul has to get to bed. It's like what two in the morning Germany time here. Yeah, it's like <laughs> no, it's like time to get up in Germany. All right. All right. Uh, we want to thank all of you for tuning in to our, uh, our listener question podcast. This was just our thank you to all the people that have listened and have written us questions over the last couple months. And we're usually so slammed. We have so much material to talk about. We don't have a chance to really get your stuff on the air. So we want to thank everyone who listens. We get a ton of feedback. We really do appreciate it. We, we only do the show because people like listening to it. I know it. So many people say, oh, it, it helps me. I have a three hour commute. It gets me through the commute or I have a long subway ride or 
we have one guy that George hands who who edges his lawn to the historians every week, and he says it's the perfect lawn, the the perfect podcast to edge and mow your lawn to. So we appreciate all the feedback we get and all the listeners, and just keep sending sending in the feedback or the questions, and we'll try to get them on the air again. Uh, SurvivorHistorians at gmail dot com. And I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, we're done. We've talked for three hours and 20 minutes. We're done. Let's do it. Let's be done. That's right. Let's uh, disconnect this bitch. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next time when we delve into the horror that is All-Stars. Was that your sign-off? I paused and I lied, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, I had nothing else. We now have an inside joke for not not recording too.